computers online. Archiving 44K. T-minus 30 seconds. Server connection confirmed. T-minus 25 seconds. T-minus 20 seconds. Phone lines are go. T-minus 15 seconds. T-minus 10 seconds. To Black Op Radio, the voice of political conspiracy research. You're listening to Black Op Radio, the show NSA doesn't want you to hear. Now here is your host, Leno Sanic. Hey man, happy new year. Happy New Year to you too, sir. Good, man. It's been uh, almost, well, uh, since when, 2021 anniversary. I think that was the last time I was on. You mean like the 1,000th show? Yeah, do you remember? Well, it was all a blur. <laughs> yeah. But I had I had everybody of importance on. Jeez, that show was, uh, it was about six hours long. I know, it was brilliant. Yeah, that's a hell of an archive historical artifact to have. And now it's coming, well, it'll be, you know, I guess two and a half years, almost three years in June, I guess. Well, no, you started in 2000, right? Yeah, so this will be my 25th year then. Um. 25 well, seasons. maybe I saw you. Uh, yeah, 20, yeah. I think actually I must have. I think I spoke to you maybe uh, the May of 2021. So maybe it wasn't the the anniversary. It probably was. But regardless, welcome, welcome, Mr. Mark Devalk to the show. Uh, I think I first was introduced to you from Dealey Plaza, UK. You were. That's uh, right. In the UK, and are you back in London now? Yeah. So, oh, are you recording, Len? Yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, I didn't know we were on. Okay, brilliant. Yes, yeah, so I'm. I'm back in the UK. I was in Canada for a couple of years just to have a break from um, teaching, and I did a bit of traveling and so forth. And then I thought I'd check Toronto out and see what the Canadian scene was. And I, you know what, Len, I didn't like it. So I'm back here. Uh, the politics of Canada has changed quite a bit since I left over 20 years ago. So you, you don't like having your bank account frozen? <laughs> yeah. Fortunately, my few pennies to the truckers uh, went under their radar, So, uh, but I did get a refund of it. But uh, yes, no, the reason I came back is I got a uh, another teaching gig at a, uh, a film school in London, so, so I thought I'd come back and uh, take up the job. So we'll see how it goes. Plus, my daughter's over here, so it was sort of, a, sort of meant to be to come back. Good. Okay. We both went to the 2013 Cyril 150th anniversary, and this year, which is the 60th, and you went there. So I was hoping to get a report from you, an update, and also that whatever you were doing to present there, you would give an overview of that as well. Yeah, that would be great. Yes. No, I I remember we had a good time back in 2013. 
2013. I remember that was also the first time I met Chris LeMay and you. And well, I met you before, but Chris LeMay. And also, you know, we got to meet Mark Lane, who's now passed away. And so is Chris. So people are moving on. And yes, I'm going to get into what happened there, Len. I'm also going to also tell you a bit about Cyril Wecht as well. There was a special dinner for him, but I'll tell you about that in chronological order. And then I'll, if that's okay with you, I'll go through some of my presentation. And then I know at some point in the future, Ben Wecht is, uh, they're going to make the videos available. I don't know if they're for purchase or not or something, but I'll give a, a bit of an overview of my presentation if that's okay with you. Yeah, very good. Very good. Okay. So I'll just go through, uh, has anybody else reported on what happened? All right. So I don't repeat anything or is uh, No, no, you won't be repeating. Jim DiEugenio just at arm's length mentioned that you know he went to the dinner and but he he spoke at a couple of other ones as well so yeah you're not repeating anything and I'm interested right that, that's good yeah okay that's cool and just uh, I did mention to Jim though uh, Len about the steak and uh, he chuckled but you weren't there to collect so oh, well, next yeah. time <laughs> back in our Hawaii days so as a matter of fact Len it's also uh, years since uh, I think it was the first week of January 2012 when I was in your studio and uh, for that cool interview we did in studio that's still available on YouTube so if people want to go back and find that that was a very enjoyable visit with you in your studio in Vancouver but yeah so now for the 2023 uh, uh, but I just want to mention this yeah. that I have a little bit of a library in the kitchen and when you decided to um when you popped into Vancouver I invited you in but you said here let's just grab a few of these books off the shelf and we can talk about them and I thought that was really interesting you had some uh, really good observations about JFK research and some of the authors that you liked and it was a really good interview so I do encourage people to find that i'll make a link to it yeah that was that was a lot of fun i think we talked about uh john armstrong's harvey and lee one of doug doug horn's uh books and also i think we may have mentioned one of your old favorite interviews uh, james fetzer's uh <laughs> the graves of Prudhoe film hoax i think there was a few in there that we went through it was quite interesting Okay, so, right, so the, yes, if you can believe it, what happened is that uh, last spring, we got an email, I don't know if you got an email as well, I think the uh, WECT Institute sent out emails asking for papers to be submitted, abstracts about presenting at this year's 60th, so I thought, I would give it a go. I didn't know if I would get selected or not. And uh, I do have some academic background as well as I teaching film. I have a PhD in film practice. So I, I know how to put together an abstract because it's, of course, uh, Duquesne is a university. So they're looking for that more, more of that formal. But I think they were, they, they were quite open, even if you didn't have an academic background per se, to send in an abstract. Anyway, so I sent one in. And I chose a, a title that I thought would be catchy first. So for people out there, always, uh, if you can use a, a catchy title as a, as a point of interest at the beginning, that will be catches the uh, reader's eye. So my presentation was called Carousel Contortionista, Jack Ruby, His Strippers and Their Moving Horses. So, uh, and I'll get into a bit about what I covered on that a little bit later once I go through the program. Of course, this year started on a Wednesday, so I flew over from uh, London. I got there, and then they had the opening on Wednesday, November 15th, where they had, like, you know, the early reception at 5.30. So this was sort of the opening thing, and I, I, I'm sure you know 
you've heard about that. Alec Baldwin was was set to do the opening remarks. And uh, so we had the Ben Wecht uh, did the initial remarks and introductions. And then, of course, this was the first time we had seen Cyril Wecht, or I had seen Cyril Wecht, and I think most people there had seen him since 2013. And Cyril now is, is in a wheelchair right now. And uh, Ben was very gracious. He kept, uh, he maneuvered his father around. And so Cyril was able to get around, but he was a bit confined to the to the wheelchair from what I could see. Uh, so, and he's getting... Older, I think Cyril's 92 now. This was a very uh, this this conference was of great interest to uh, the researchers because you know many of us were not sure if we're, if there's a conference in 10 years, you know. So, uh, but I'll tell you about how everybody said goodbye to him during the dinner. That was quite moving. I think everybody I, I looked around, everybody had tears in their eyes. So it was quite quite a powerful emotional sort of farewell at that at that moment. That's what it felt like. Uh, but we had the great introductory remarks uh, by uh, Cyril and Ben. And then we had a couple of keynote speakers. And then we had a, a woman named, I, I think the head of the university spoke. And then we had a keynote speaker given ad, uh, an address called Why JFK's Camelot Endures and Why It Still Matters. And I, I think that, Len, was really for the uh, novices in the crowd because the woman who did that, Barbara Perry, who has a PhD, it was very thorough, but I think all the seasoned researchers knew everything that this person had mentioned. But it was, So it was an overview, really, before the students and for those who are being introduced to the case because uh, it was a mixed crowd. So you had seasoned researchers, those who knew a little bit about it, and then students and, and people who were learning for the first time. So the keynote was really geared for the for the beginner then we went to uh the first uh, drama of the evening of course we were all waiting for alec baldwin to show up there was some chat about irony was not lost on alec baldwin's appearance but that's another story we can uh, talk about that another time maybe uh but alec baldwin showed up with if you can believe it len an armed escort and alec came up to the stage and he i think he had like sort of a a prime little green room behind the stage that they had a curtain set up so he was sort of milling around before it started and I then sat right initially right at the front directly where the podium is because that's going to be the best spot but right behind me was Doug Weldon and uh sorry is that right the, the guy uh, is that is it Weldon no Doug Horn Doug Horn thank you it was Doug Horn was sitting right behind me with a group of people and Alec Baldwin spotted Doug Doug Horn and, and and Doug was talking to a bunch of people and I was sort of listening in. I was just sort of sitting in front of them. And Alec obviously knows uh, Doug Horn because he came over and he sat down and he shook all our hands. So just there's four or five people. And then I was sitting right there too. So I got to shake Alec Baldwin's hand. He sat down and then him and sort of Doug talked because they knew each other. So we listened to it. So that was pretty cool. And then uh, after that, Alec went up to the front and gave his keynote address. That was very good. Uh, so that's, again, these are all recorded too for, for future uh, reference. So I'm sure, um, uh, Ben's going to make these available, but they might be for a few pennies. Um, but so he gave a good keynote address and had seemed to have a pretty good grasp of the case. He also talked about how he actually has already made a documentary funded by NBC, and it had people like Mark Lane in it and a few others, and they pulled it. So uh, so they actually shot it. It's all been shot, but NBC pulled it. It's somewhere in a vault. So 
Alec Baldwin doesn't have enough uh, clout, he said, or enough money to buy it off them. So, and they, they paid for it also. They own it. So, and so it was an interesting sort of keynote. And that was sort of the, the first evening's adjournment. And that was our opening. So that was pretty good. And of course, Alec Baldwin stuck around and, uh, you know, everybody who wanted a selfie got one. I didn't get a selfie, but I took a couple of pictures of him at the podium. But uh, so that was good enough. So that was a nice, uh, interesting, you know, way to open. So I got everybody excited. And there was some media there, of course. And we all, uh, there's some, uh, you know, obviously controversy about Alec Baldwin's other case he's involved in. So that's what I meant by the irony a little bit of him being there. So interesting, though, that's America for you. Okay, so Thursday was the Criminalist Forensic Science and Medicine Day. That was right. And then on Friday, which I spoke at, was going to be the history, politics, and the future. So just going through what happened on Thursday. So some they started off in the morning, 8.30 a.m., with welcomes and introductions by Ben Wecht. So they got really into it fast. Uh, they had initial, we were all in the big hall, and then Later in the day, the, you could break away, and there were some secondary talks going on at the same time. If you recall from 2013, you could pick which one you wanted to go to. So there was two running simultaneously for most of the late morning and afternoon. But first thing in the morning, they had everybody there together, and they had the big super panel up at the beginning called the Converging Lines of Evidence and the Case for the Two Headshots. That was Gary Aguilar, Josiah Thompson, and Bill Simpich. So uh, everyone's familiar with those three. So they went through um, Josiah Thompson's uh, last seconds scenario, last second scenario, which is his most recent book. And then Bill Simpich did a lawyer thing, and then Gary Aguilar went through his elements. Again, you people can watch the videos, but that was the title of it. Then at 10 o'clock, we actually, this was very interesting from an historical point of view, because we actually had somebody there. Uh, somebody speaking who was actually with the Kennedys, and that was Paul Landis, uh, United States Secret Service, now retired, of course. And he was there with his new book. And this this talk was called The Final Witness, a Kennedy Secret Service agent breaks his silence after 60 years. So your listeners may have heard in the in the autumn when Vanity Fair published Paul Landis's account that he found his thing is he's saying he found a bullet on the back of the limousine when it was at Parkland Hospital. Now, he told his story and he showed all these fantastic photographs of him as a young uh, Secret Service agent with the Kennedys. And especially even during the funeral, there was right there with, with the casket and so forth. So that was like, oh, my goodness, here's this person who was actually there and they're sitting here. So historically, that was dynamite. Very, very good experience. But the story about the bullet, uh, people are a bit on the fence. Some are taking it on and others are a bit more skeptical. I'm not sure myself because this bullet has disappeared, but he says he swears that he found the bullet on the back of the, the limousine. Well, if I can ask you, what are the pros and cons? Like, what do the naysayers say or, and what's the positive from it? Well, uh, the naysayers would say that there, I mean, it's disappeared, right? So there's no, there's no bullet and nobody else saw it. And he apparently picked it up and put it in his pocket and he didn't tell anybody. So this is what he said there. He didn't tell anybody he had this bullet. And then I don't know what happened. He said he he put it down or he put it on a stretcher or something like that, and then he just left it. It's, it's some, 
something like that. So I was like, you know what I mean? It's sort of like, oh man, okay, it could be true. I mean, I mean, it might it might have happened exactly as he said, or you know, it just seems that why wouldn't you tell anybody? Why wouldn't you say anything until decades later? So there was that's what I mean by that. So I'm agnostic right now. I'm I'm happy to believe it if it's we can have some confirmation, but it's a tough road if you don't say anything. But I, I guess maybe he was worried about. I mean, he didn't tell us why he didn't tell anybody. Anyways, you could read his book. He had his. He was signing his book there. He seemed like a very nice person. I mean, he's very nice. He seems very honest. But it just seems as you know, what are the odds of you not saying anything for decades about this bullet? And then why didn't you hand it to somebody or say I found some evidence? You know what I mean? Or or put it in an envelope and say, here I found this. You know what I mean? So that's basically it. That's basically the back and forth. So uh, I'm agnostic because it's seems strange a professional even though he was young wouldn't know to pass it on if you had it or say hey i found a bullet here why why put it in your pocket and not tell anybody so that's that's sort of a uh, challenge for me to get over that because it's not logical to do that but anyways it's possible that maybe somebody panicked or didn't want to couldn't deal with it i don't know who knows okay fair enough thank you okay right so then we went on to there was a panel called Forensic Reactions to an Historical Revelation. That was with Cyril Wecht and Paul Landis, so the two uh, together. So Cyril was up on the stage with the Paul, the Secret Service guy, and uh, the head of the, uh, it looks like the president of the university or somebody, Ken Gormley, was moderating. That was okay. And then it was followed up by Douglas Horns. Two brain exams following the JFK's autopsy. So Douglas Horn went through that in detail about the, the notion of the two brains. I didn't see that one. I went to the second, the concurrent session, which because I sort of know Doug's stuff a little bit. So this this other guy, Brian Rosell, who I hadn't heard of before, he was presenting for the first time. He did something called Forensic Modeling of Human Reactions and a JFK Assassination Timeline. Now, what was interesting about Brian's session was that, that he uh, reanalyzed the Elsie Dorfman film. That's that really shaky film from the fourth floor of the Texas School Book Depository, you know, where, where uh, the girl on the stairs, uh, Victoria, the, the other ladies were watching out. So this Elsie Dorfman took Sandra that really Styles shaky. Sandra Styles and, and Victoria. Yeah, Adams. Sandra Styles, uh, Victoria, what's her last Adams, name again? Adams. Yeah, Victoria Adams. And then this another lady, and then this Elsie Dorfman who had this camera. And as you remember, she's trying to film the limousine coming up Houston Street, and it's you know really shaky. Anyways, this Brian guy has used that in figuring out more. I mean, I wish I could remember exactly what it was. I'd have to look at his presentation again. But I thought it was very interesting uh, because I hadn't even thought of that film before, and it, he it actually revealed quite a bit. You could actually see the. Uh, you know the uh, the Willis girl running, and he could he he sunk up all this stuff to come up with the notion of um, about JFK's reactions that there was a, a whole bunch more bullets, obviously, than the three. We know that, but it was just sort of in that range. So I encourage people to look at that one. But of course, Douglas Horn's two brains exams is also, I mean, they're all strong materials. Then over the lunch period, we had. Uh, a couple of people who appeared by Zoom that you could watch while you're eating your lunch. So one was Robert Grodin. So, of course, 
Albert Groden, his was called Documenting the Authenticity of the Zapruder Film. So, of course, Groden is big on that there's no alteration to the Zapruder film. It is what it is. So that could be controversial, or, or, or if you believe that it's no alteration, then you're with Robert Groden. But anyways, he did that. And then we also had Rob Reiner, the, uh, the film director. He appeared on and uh, talked uh, by Zoom in a session called Who Killed JFK? And also he also talked about a series he was trying to put together as well on, on the case. So he's very pro, you know, like in the Oliver Stone camp. And so he was talking about his experiences of trying to get a, you know, of course, he, he believes the uh, the challenges to the Warren Commission and wanted to get this series uh, going. Anyways, he's still trying to get it off the ground. Then we had uh, Donald Thomas after lunch, the acoustical analysis. Now, I've heard Donald Thomas's presentation before, so he's looked at all the dicta belts and stuff. I, I think most people have, most of the seasoned researchers have followed that presentation by Donald over the years. So, But it was good for, you know, because there was many new people in the audience and there were students there. And also it was going over Zoom. So there was a lot, a lot of people around the world, you know, or many countries also listening in. You could pay a small fee. I know my daughter watched. You could buy a six-hour uh, block of time for a reasonable price or you could buy the whole thing. So people were watching it at different levels of per their time that they had to to, to view the materials. Then we had analyzing the General Walker shooting, engaging the authenticity of the Walker bullet. Then after that, we had the Oswald letter, an analysis. Oh, this was interesting. Uh, an analysis of dyslexia and how it changes our understanding of the assassination. This person was a bit more pro Warren Commission, Jerry Croft, PhD. So a few people in the audience were groaning. I think I I think I I heard Jim Eugenio groan out loud on purpose a few times. So that was a bit challenging to watch that by Zoom because it was like pretty pro-Warren Commission kind of thing. So, you know, there was a lot of audible groans. Uh, but fair enough. That's what who they, they chose to be on that. So, okay, then we had the final one of the day was uh, Russell Kent, who was also from the UK, a, a British guy. He did something called Unmasking the Rockefeller Committee Medical Panel. So that was good. So we went through a whole bunch of stuff on that. I mean, again, uh, my memory, I'd have to watch the, uh, the videos again. But uh, you can tell by the titles, they're interesting. Okay, so then we had the uh, evening was the dinner. So there was a dinner that was uh, put on by CAPA, the, the Coalition Against Political Assassinations. So all the presenters, so if you're presenting there, you could go to the dinner or you could have bought a ticket in advance. And of course, they had a big thing for Cyril Weck there. And this was, the, they played a lot of old videos of Cyril, uh, you know, doing his different presentations and his very uh, passionate expression of uh, way he presents. So that was that was very enjoyable for everyone to see. And then, of course, he, he thanked everybody. And, and uh, then he, at the very end, this is when everybody got a bit teary-eyed. Ben invited, said, Cyril's going to stick around now, and he wants to shake everybody's hand. So we all shook his hand, but, you know, it was, it was almost like a, it was, it felt like it was a goodbye in a way. So it was very, very powerful. And uh, he was, I think he was saying goodbye because that's just where we are in life and that's where he's in, in, in life. So, so uh, that was very powerful. And then 
and then that was it. Well, he's in his 90s now, isn't he? Well, he's 92, and he's I think he's pretty well confined to the Right, so the there wouldn't thing. be another 10-year, you know, he, he won't be there to 102, so that's why it would be a good yeah. guy to anybody who traveled for yeah, or every even, 10 I years. Mean, he, yeah, even if someone, you know, because people do live 10, you know, in their hundreds, but uh, I don't think there'll be another conference, you know, it'll be too much. But yes, realistically, I think uh, he was saying goodbye and that's what it felt like. But it was, so it was very, I, I feel very fortunate to have been there. And uh, so that was, that was very good, very, very touching. All right, Friday. November 17th was the History, Politics, and Future. And then we had the intros in the morning by Ben, so that was pretty good. And then, of course, everyone, as I mentioned, is all together in a big hall for the first uh, for the first one. And that was by John Newman. And he was uh, doing something called the Assassination of President Kennedy, Understanding the Cold War Context. So very in-depth analysis, analysis of the historical context in the Cold Cold War, how it relates to the assassination. Now, I, many of us have read John Newman's material, so we have a pretty good understanding of, of what he was talking about in advance. But for the new people and people listening on Zoom and the students there, it was a very good history lesson. And then we broke up into the next groups. So the next group at 10 o'clock was uh, Jefferson Morley. So you could go and see Jefferson Morley, or you could come and see mine. I think Jefferson Morley drew the bigger crowd. He was in the, the big giant hall, but I had a pretty good crowd, and I had probably about 40 people, including about 12 or 15 students come in. That was pretty good. Uh, so that was at 10. So Jefferson Morley's was the CIA and Jeff K. What's 30 years of reporting? Tell me. So he went through his, from what I I understand went through his uh, his times through with the Washington Post and so forth and how he's covered the, the story over the years. So those who wanted to hear a bit more uh, lurid elements came to mind, my carousel contortionista, and I'll go through that a bit later what I covered because it was actually uh, created quite a good discussion. And then at the end of my presentation, I actually showed a, a little video I don't know if you remember, Len, but uh, back in 2009, I was uh, when at the conference in Dallas. I received a phone call on Sunday morning, about 7:30 of the, you know, the last day of the conference when they had those uh, Lancer conferences and COPA conferences, and someone I knew said, "You must go to 10th and Patton right now because Mrs. Tippett is going to be at 10th and Patton." And at first I said, what are you talking about? That's like, well, are you crazy? It's it Sunday morning. It's like quarter to eight in the morning. And they said, no, there's a memorial thing happening. So I immediately got my stuff together. I got my camera, my video camera, and I zipped over from the Adolphus Hotel to 10th and Patton. And there, right at the same spot where Tippett was gunned down, was a beautiful, original replica of number 10 Dallas police car, Tippett's police car. The police, Dallas Police Department had restored this car and had towed it there. It's got no motor in it, but it was in beautiful mint condition. People were, some people, attendants were polishing it. There was like maybe 20 people there. So as soon as I got out of the, uh, the vehicle I was in, I turned on my camera and I started filming. So I filmed the car and people milling around and there was police and the, the road was blocked off and this was like i got there like literally just after you know 9 15 or something i got there really quick because it's only three and a half miles from the 
from the Adolphus. So I was filming and we're going, oh man, is Mrs. Tippett going to show up and so forth. And then literally about 15 minutes later, a car pulled up and not only Mrs. Tippett, but the entire Tippett family got out of this car and came up to the replica car. So I filmed all this and it was, uh, I, I got to uh, have a picture taken with Mrs. Tippett in front of car number 10 in the same spot. It was really for sort of freaky, but amazing. And so I have this footage. And then, of course, eventually, uh, Mrs. You know, Mrs. Tippett got quite emotional and so forth. And she sat in the car. It was like, oh, wow. Anyway, so I filmed all this. So at the end of my presentation, Len, I had put together maybe a, a four-minute highlight thing of which i showed people so that will be on the video so if you want to actually see mrs tippett at 10th and Patton looking at her husband's restored car it's like stunning plus all the the sons and daughters were there of course all grown up and that's already 2009 she must be getting on pretty pretty far now right so then at 11 we had something called new findings about the texas school book depository building owner David D.H. Bird. So there was a presentation about that. And then there was another presentation called J. Edgar Hoover and Lyndon Johnson and how they obstructed justice. Now, I went to the Hoover with this one, but and uh, that was quite full in that. But a lot of that stuff we already knew. So the Hoover and Lyndon Johnson and how they obstructed justice. Again, that was more for people who didn't know much about the case. Most of us there that I could see we we knew a lot of that stuff, but you know that's good. Did anything anything stand out from that? Like, well, item. You know, I, I'd have to look at the video again because it was all sort of. I sort of I sort of tuned out a little bit because it was I was hearing stuff I already knew. So when that happens, I I wasn't necessarily completely focused in nothing out of the ordinary, other than you know the the, the same okay. old stuff about yeah yeah. Then during the lunch, they had a highlight screening of a film that's coming out called Four Died Trying. I didn't see that one, but they showed us some highlights. So that's a, a documentary about four, you know, JFK, MLK, uh, Malcolm X, and uh, Robert Kennedy. So that they showed some highlights of that, the filmmakers. Then Jim Eugenio did uh, The Death of JFK and the Rise of the Neocons in U.S. Foreign Policy. So just as the title says, so Jim went through um, how neocons have, uh, you know, wormed their way in through the whole U.S. foreign policy. Then concurrent session uh, was, was called an inside perspective on the relationship between Lee Oswald and the Paines. Then uh, there was another Zoom that ran at the same time by Greg Parker uh, from Australia. I think it was a pre-recorded Zoom. It was called Lee Oswald, the Patchwork Kid. Then at 2.30... Lessons from the AARB, the ARRB, the value of investigative research into national security. Then our method of teaching the assassination, inspiring the next generation of researchers. I went to this one and it was basically two educationalists talking about how teachers could use, teach the assassination and the research in a classroom setting. It was okay, but, you know, it was their idea. So you could, you could be part of a program program if you wanted it to come to your to your school or university and so forth yeah and then the final one of the day which we all went back to the big hall so everyone was together was uh, david talbot by zoom did something why our side is winning losing uh, winning or losing the media war so david went through all that we know he he had a stroke a number 
number of years ago. So he was doing it from his home. I think it looked like in San Francisco. So he went through that and then it was tied up by closing uh, remarks. And then there was the adjournment. So that was, those were all the titles of the presentations, Len. And uh, so it was uh, full on two, two days, two full days, and then the opening with Alec Baldwin. So it was quite a full-on experience. Again, as you know, there's sometimes some interesting conversations take place in the hotel lobbies. Um, I remember back in 2013, we had some good discussions. There was yourself, me, Jim DiGenio, Lisa Pease. Chris LeMay, right? Pat. And then about 10 others, we would yeah. go to a little pub or somewhere or out for dinner. And um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, Pat Spear, I remember he was there. So he was at our table. And then remember across the other table, there was like uh, De- Deborah uh, from Lancer, I forget her last Conway. name. Yeah, Deborah Conway, her sister Sherry, uh, Jefferson Morley, and Russ Baker. I remember them sitting across from us, but we were in our group, and they were in their group. So that was a lot of fun. That happened a little bit, but they had the pits. We were in a hotel that was right beside where the Pittsburgh Penguins were playing. So <laughs> all these hockey people invaded our hotel chat after so it got a bit loud anyways that's that's a secondary but it was also great being in pittsburgh this time i went to the andy warhol museum len i don't know if you've been to that anyways that was right in the center of pittsburgh so that was a that was a bonus so that was basically what we did and then we everyone sort of flew out on saturday we all got out so it was in and out and then I had a long haul flight back to the UK because both ways I had to change. And that's always a, a pain when you got to change airports. But it was worth it, though. And uh, the, the amazing thing was we, seeing Cyril Wacht and we all shaking his hand, very emotional moments and just saying our goodbyes and farewells. And so that was, you know. Yeah, because I recall in 2013, it, it was called the theme was passing the torch. And now yes, it really right. is. Yeah. Yeah, so passing the torch, right? So that was what's happened this year. It was called, yeah, the, the it was called the JFK assassination at sixty new frontiers in scientific, medical, legal, and historical research. So that was uh, how the the uh, conference was divided up. So the first, as I mentioned, the Thursday was all the forensics and science, and then Friday was all the history, politics, and thinking about. About the future. So, congratulations to Cyril and Ben Wecht. As uh, Ben, I know, did a lot of running around. He was everywhere all at once. So, uh, he really put in a fantastic effort. And so, his a special thank you, I, I believe, from everybody there to to Ben and Cyril for organizing this. And uh, everybody was glad to be there for this for this special occasion. So. That's basically, did you have any questions about the event, Len, this year? No, I'm just listening because I, I went to one, so I kind of know what to expect. I do recall with humor that when we went to was about 450 people, and they were in the middle of one side. And the other side, which some of the chairs are empty, there was just McAdams and Max Holland sitting by themselves, right? Yes, I remember that. Yes, and also, of course, John McAdams has passed on too. So, But this year, Len, I didn't see any – well, maybe there was quite a few people there, so I, I didn't see any uh, – I didn't see Max Holland or I didn't see anybody. I don't know who else would have been questioning it. Yes, I remember those two at the back because I remember when in Lisa Pease's 2013 presentation, if you recall, she called out, uh, John McAdams at the back. I remember he sort of shuffled off 
Uh, he sort of dashed out. He was a bit embarrassed, I think. Well, you know what What she did say? She said if it wasn't for John, she would have never got into this. But he was such lying about the facts as she looked into it. It pissed her off, and it really gave her some leverage, you know, to anchor and say, I'm going to look into this because what these bozos are saying is just so, you know, like there's a Gerald Posner and there's a McAdams, but they're... They're just pathetic liars. It's not, it's if like right now you yeah, can argue, did the car stop? The Zapruder film, well, if the car stopped, then the Zapruder film's been altered. So they cut something out. You know, you can have that debate and say, okay, talk me into it. Show me where, you know. And then as you look in the Zapruder film, you go, oh, there's some anomalies here. But then, you know, you go, well, I'm not sure the car stopped for 14 seconds, as some people claim. But then, you know, you, you can have a reasonable debate. You know, Robert Groden versus, uh, you know, Jim Fetzer or whatever. You know, they, they say, you know, it, it has to be. But just on that point, yeah. So it's not necessarily Jim Fetzer. Remember, Jim Fetzer was just the, uh, he was just the editor of the great Zapruder film homes. You have to read the people who contributed, like David Mantic and so forth. Yeah. Right. But what I'm saying, in the community of well-meaning people, there can be an honest debate. But when you come across a guy like Posner or a McAdams or a Max Holland, they're just um, prostitute is one word. They're just like Gary Mack. Give me enough money and I'll say, what do you want me to say? You know? Oh, of course it was, you know, Lee Oswald. I mean, uh, Mack was a piece of shit. You, you mean you, you mean Larry Dinkle? <laughs> Dunkle? Dunkle, that is. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah, oh, oh, I forgot to mention, yes. Actually, speaking of that, thank you for bringing that up, Lennis, because I did forget to mention David Mantic's uh, – I, I, I skipped over that one. So David Mantic did a presentation called A Closer Look at the Zapruder Film, The Case for Alteration. So this is what the, uh, the sort of the controversy was there a little bit, is that Robert Groden gave his lunchtime Zoom chat how the Zapruder Film is unaltered. And then David Mantic, in my humble opinion, and I, I think most people there, uh, dismantled Robert Groden's arguments uh, in his presentation the case for alteration so that but uh yeah so that was quite uh, that was quite interesting as well so and it was good to see everybody there but i have to admit len we're all we're all getting on now you know i mean we already dropped 10 years from the last uh conference that big one and you know we're all getting older you know what i mean uh so and i could see that in many of the well including my face but everyone everyone looked just a little little bit older especially the one well people 10 I've years right 10 years. 10 years yeah yeah you know everyone you know everyone's looking a little you know and so by the way i was glad when you you mentioned my 1000th show that you were on um when i went to do that 1000th show i found over 50 people had passed away like you mentioned Mark Lane and there's the John Judge and Fletcher Prouty and and the list goes on over 50 people since i started black op radio in this topic had passed away guests right so yeah no that, that's why it's uh i mean your archive well it will be a fantastic historical archive and i know you've backed it up a number of times just in case there's some kind of cyber meltdown right 
So, yeah, we need to preserve all. I'm sure you have good backups in, in case. But, yes, for history, these will be are fantastic. I was hoping secretly, Len, uh, I, I said to my daughter before I left, I said, you know, I would love to go to this conference. And then all of a sudden, yeah, it's, it's wonderful Alec Baldwin showed up. But wouldn't it be fantastic if Robert Kennedy Jr. all of a sudden showed up unannounced just to 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 pay his respects to Cyril and everything? You know what I mean? I was thinking maybe RFK Jr. might show up. Well, he didn't show up, but you know what? I bet you he was listening or his representatives were listening online. And I'm sure they'll have a copies of all well, the Well, the bad thing about that is when you're running an election and you have to worry about not hurting anyone's feelings, he really should have helped out Saran more on Saran's parole hearing, but he didn't show up. And then he was granted parole. And then what's his name? Newsom? Gavin Newsom? The, uh, yeah. The he governor. overturned it, right? And if Robert yeah. Kennedy Jr. had been there, I think that would have helped. Yeah, it would have, yeah. Well, I guess these are calculations people make, but I'm sure uh, behind the scenes they're they're very uh, thankful for the uh, researchers and so forth. I also should mention, Len, that uh, there was a woman there. I found out that they're, they're actually going to turn these presentations into a book. I met a woman named Laura Fillmore, if she's listening, from Open Book Systems. So she was talking, because uh, I got an email, I think Ben Wex sent an email to all the speakers saying, uh, if everything's co- cool with everyone, uh, this person's going to be turning all the, uh, you know, she's going to make a book of these presentations, however she's going to write it anyway. So I thought that was interesting. So perhaps in the near future, there'll be a, a printed book uh, going through all the highlights of of, of what was discussed at this conference, which would be would be very nice for particularly for for Cyril Wecht, if in fact this would be the last sort of big conference he's there for this. So uh, I think that might have been partially why they organized that. So we'll see how that goes. But I do remember meeting her and speaking with her, so that was pretty cool. So would you like me to go through some of this carousel contortionista lens? Yes. 100%. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, all right, everyone, fasten your seatbelts. I'll just put mine on here. <laughs> okay. Here we go. So, I'll just go through it like I presented it. So, basically, I'm going to just start with the, the, the premise and, and abstract of what I'm doing. So, some background. The question is, why and where did Jack Ruby, within a 72-hour period, Midday 21 November to midday 24 November 63, hastily and impromptu interact with a myriad of burlesque dancers, policemen, and business associates, including family, his family, intel, and mafia hoodlums. How does Ruby's actions and engagements, all within a condensed five-mile geographical radius of the Carousel Club, contribute to our evidentiary understanding that Lee Harvey Oswald, also known as Ozzy the Rabbit, was the anointed patsy? To what extent did Jack Ruby et al. grasp and be au fait with, per the forces that ring-fenced their knowledge, anxiety, and panic of what quote, Operation Oswald, quote, denote, unquote, denoted during those three November days in Dallas. So the methodology is I will explore and draw from official Warren Commission and FBI depositions, particularly volumes 14, 15, 16, 18, 20, 21, and 25, and 26, inclusive of commission exhibits, HSCA report, and a 1976 Jim Garrison interview. 
Subpoenaed testimonies examined include, this is what I've examined, a range of Jack Ruby's dancers, performers, and staff at the Carousel Club and Colony Club, his two sisters and the Vegas Club, witnesses at Parkland Hospital, restaurant hospitality staff, his apartment building occupants and neighbors, Dallas policemen, Dealey Plaza individuals, Dallas Morning News staff, recipients of telephone calls. The results. So what I'm going to do today is I'm just going to give sort of a an overview of some of these elements I've been looking into. So the results, a close analysis of what I term, quote, the Dallas big wheel, unquote, the time period after which Oswald's custodial group in New Orleans hands off to Ruby et al. in Dallas comes to a head during 21-24 November. Ruby is arguably implicated in his foreknowledge and complicity at the level of quote, the Oswald package. That is what he thought and had been convinced of by his own handlers would be a simulated attack in Dealey Plaza for political gain with Lee Harvey Oswald to take the blame. Consequently, Ruby frantically attempts to determine if he is next and what tracks need covering. So I'm using this notion of the Oswald package, Len. I know we've talked about this before and and I've talked to, to John Armstrong about it, this, this fake attack potentially coming from the Texas School Book Depository. I think Ruby was in that, but I'll get into some more detail on that. So what we might find, and for a conclusion, the Carousel Club at 1312 and a half Commerce Street can be read as the big top center of an orbiting amusement park carousel from which spins forth a mosaic of characters who attest to Ruby's furtive crab-like movements and anxiety-ridden demeanor per his conduct on the day before, day of, and day after the assassination. Like wooden animals suspended from chains on a carousel, those who met and spoke with Ruby during those chaotic 72 hours implicate his interchanges and contortions within the central circle of Dallas to reveal his complicity. Hence, Jack Ruby comes to realize the extent to which he is cornered and checkmated by his own participation and thus must send Oswald into the afterlife. Okay, so that's the opening background. So I'm going to start talking now about what I, the concept of what I've come up with. It's three tiers, T-I-E-R-S, not crying tiers. Three tiers or three circles and the ramifications. So we're going to look at three conceptual circles. Remember, we're thinking about the Ruby group as thinking there was going to be a fake attack. I'll explain that in a moment. So section one, concept of three tiers and ramifications. Okay, so under section one, I'm going to also look at the custodial handoff from New Orleans to Dallas. In section two, some interesting business connections and Oak Cliff addresses. Jack Ruby burlesque and Dallas police timeline highlights. I'm going to go through some sample case studies of Warren Commission threads that were left hanging. Talk about, for example... Ruby's neighbor, George A. Bouget, who was the best, first best friend of Lee Harvey Oswald. And Bouget is B-O-U-H-E. The Ruby, Kathy K., Harry Olson connection. Now a lot of your listeners and seasoned researchers will know about Kathy K., the Ruby stripper who was dating Dallas policeman Harry Olson. Section three, 
something new, the ABCB. That's the American Bottlers of Carbonated Beverages. We'll be looking at a place called Market Hall, not the Dallas Trademark where the luncheon was going to be, but right beside the trademark was a place called the Market Hall. And this is where the American Bottlers of Carbonated Beverages were having what I term a sh- their sugar fest, right? Soda pops, Coca-Colas, you know, the 7-Up ginger ale, all are basically sugar delivery systems, in my opinion. And everybody who was there was part of the sugar business. And guess what? Cuba is well known for what crop? Sugar. So the people at this sugar fest from the ABCB at the market hall, right beside the trademark, were no friends of JFK. And this association was meeting there from the 19th of November to the 21st of November. So the final day on the 21st, Thursday the 21st, a lot of them stuck around to watch the parade the next day, of course. But I'm going to get into some detail on that in a moment. Also, if you recall the Cabana Motel, well, I looked that up. It's not actually called the Cabana. It's pronounced, I looked up the correct Spanish pronunciation. It's pronounced Cabana, C-A-B-A-N-A. I think most of us have heard about the Cabana Motel where people like uh, Nancy Perrin Rich and Jack Ruby, and they've all been going to this Cabana Motel. Well, it's actually called the Cavania, which is, that's how Havana is spelled in Spanish, H-A-B-A-N-A. So we, we say Havana, but the correct pronunciation is Havania. So it's interesting that this Cavania or Cabana Motel crowd, which includes Ruby visiting there, land your old friend Jim Braden, uh, and Hoffa Teamsters, because the Cabana Hotel was built on money given by Jimmy Hoffa. And that's, if you recall where the Cabana Hotel is, it's literally in the middle point on Stemmons Freeway between Dealey Plaza and Parkland Hospital. And I'm going to tell you who was watching out the windows as the limousine roared by on its way to Parkland Hospital. Okay, so section one, this first tier, this inner circle, as I call it. Remember, I'm thinking of three concentric circles now or three tiers. Uh, The first tier, that's the inner circle, was uh, D.C. and Miami together, Washington, D.C., Miami. This was what I call the protected group. This, for example, David Atlee Phillips, Howard Hunt, Tracy Barnes, who ran uh, Operation 40 team. These were the field operatives repping the will of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the CIA masters. So this is the inner circle running out of Miami, right? Phillips, Hunt, Tracy Barnes, the Operation 40 team. The week of the 19th, within this also, this tier, uh, this is something you'll know about as well. Week of the 19th, November, on the ground uh, was Pentagon CIA liaison. Um, General Lansdale, uh, supervisory lead of what I suggest the role of the his his role was the lead role. If we are uh, going with Fletcher Prouty spotting him in the photographs, and that was being confirmed by Victor Krulak, so I see uh, Lansdale as the on ground liaison. He's the supervisor. 
of the wet team whose local support communications team arguably arguably includes Jack Crichton, who was the Dallas part of the Dallas Civil Defense Army Reserve Unit. He headed the reserve intel component. The link he had Jack Crichton had links to military intelligence, the Dallas police, the white Russian community, oil community, George DeMoran Shield, who was Lee Harvey Oswald's uh, later handler, and D.H. Byrd who owned the Texas School Book Depository. Crichton organized a translator for Marina Oswald. He was part of the Dallas Petroleum Club. He opened, this is something I knew I learned, he opened the Dallas Health and Science Museum, which was fitted with an underground command center with communications equipment, and that opened in April 1962. And he was also former OSS, and he was part of a, affiliated with a, a public service announcement program in 1961 called Know Your Enemy. Uh, so, okay, so also under this uh, Lansdale thing was the uh, uh, motorcade pilot car. So the pilot car was functioning, I would argue, as a forward mobile command survey unit driving one quarter mile ahead of Kennedy. Its occupants included Deputy Police Chief George L. Lumpkin, who was a friend of this Crichton's. He was the driver. A Lieutenant Colonel George Whitmire, commander of all Army Reserve units in East Texas, and Crichton's boss. Whitmire was not approved to be in a pilot car, but bullied or pushed his way in at the outset. He wasn't even supposed to be there. And then, of course, uh, Jesse Curry, Dallas Police Chief, was there as well in the pilot car, plus three others. Okay, also working with the Lansdale was a woman named, I mean, this is my thesis again, hypothesis, Dorothy Matlack. She was on call or monitoring or from or to the Pentagon. She was an aide to Lansdale and CIA, in the CIA liaison office. So here's some things on her. She was assistant director of Army Office of Intel, she ran thousands of Cuban refugee interviews. She interviewed George de Mornshield, remember Lee Harvey Oswald's later handler. She was a military defector specialist. She was on the interagency defector committee. I believe Dorothy Matlock, in my hypothesis, was more on a need-to-know basis and was, was a compartmentalized individual for this executive action. Uh, in an advisory role only. For example, uh, her co-worker, Fletcher Prouty, who was also out of the loop, as we know, was sent on an Antarctic excursion. And of course, Fletcher Prouty was uh, DOD Air Force liaison to CIA in the Pentagon. Yeah, I he, hope was, I have uh, that he worked as right. chief of Team B, and they were, uh, the whole military, the liaison between... Um, the Air Force, his office, and then that office in which Victor Krulak worked in, and Lansdale and all those people, they they coordinated, you know, uh, between uh, yes. CIA and and the um, the forces. Yeah, so I, I believe, so my uh, hypothesis is that Dorothy Matlock was uh, was on on the line at the Pentagon or monitoring somewhere for, uh, for them while Lansdale was leading the field operation at uh, the behest of that inner circle run out of Miami. 
Okay, so now we get into something called the custodial handoff, New Orleans to Dallas via Miami. So now we're talking about now that was the first circle, the tier, tier number one. So think of it in the center there. That's a very protected center circle. Those some example names I went through. So this is tier two now. Remember, this is I'm setting up the uh, where Ruby is in, in all this. And so where tier two is, as I mentioned, so this is the middle circle now. This is the New Orleans Dallas crowd. This group was vulnerable to termination or blackmail, which was variable over time. This is where Ruby was. This is where I believe. So the New Orleans people, you know, all the fairies and the, the Clay Shaws and the, and. They were handling Oswald there, and then they handed him off to the Ruby group, or the Ruby was part of the group. This was the group that I'm arguing that thought there was going to be a fake attack to whip up support, to topple, to send in uh, whatever needed to be done to remove Castro. I believe this group, in my hypothesis, uh, was convinced that this was that was the plan. Now, they didn't know what was coming. That's why... When I talk about a little bit later about Jack Ruby's demeanor, why he was acting like absolutely like a maniac out of complete fear and anxiety, completely out of out of character. Uh, but OK, so we'll, we'll get to that. Uh, OK, so this is the Shaw Ferry Bannister Regional Cubans trademark cover 544 Camp Street pipeline. That was the New Orleans. This group was thinking there was going to be this attack uh, that they were participating in, but not for real, right? Okay, part B, Ruby, the Carousel Club cover, it's a strippers. So Ruby, the Carousel Club, as a cover with the strippers, and I believe the strippers were utilized as flack or shiny objects to distract attention. So whatever meetings would say, or people would show up there for meetings at the Carousel Club, very good. It's like going to Oslo going to the movie theater you're going to a very either a dark quiet movie theater or a very loud noisy club with with distractions shiny objects of the dancers while they could do meetings or whatever was going on in that for example uh, and then part c on that is the second oswald the double the american born one so this is where i line up with john armstrong so the second oswald the uh, Lee Oswald was the American born and he was part of that group uh, in the middle circle, right? Because remember we had the second Oswald popping up all over the place. Okay. We know the gun range, but also the morning of going to top 10 records, buying tickets for the Dick Clark show, going down to a, a convenience store on industrial Boulevard and buying beer at eight 30 in the morning, having the show ID and then coming back an hour later, buying more beer and candy. So it was like, anyway, so that's, that's that Oswald, uh, refer people to the John Armstrong book on that one. Okay. So the week of 19th November. So during that member of the ABCB, the American bottlers of carbonated beverages. Well, during that week, we know that Nixon was attending that. So Nixon had a press conference on Wednesday, Wednesday the 20th, and he went into a big diatribe at the convention about an attack Kennedy uh, and this at this ABC, what I call sugar convention, because basically it's a sugar convention. And if you think about it, what is more, if not as profitable or more profitable than the oil people of Dallas 
is the sugar industry. Sugar is in everything. Yes, we have oil for fuels. Oil is in plastics, but sugar is in everything consumed by everybody around the world. So very valuable commodity, either on the level of oil or certainly to rival it. Um, we also know on the Monday the 19th, Monday the 19th, LBJ gave the keynote address there. He gave the keynote address on Monday, and then he flew to the Hawaii conference. Okay, so he was there that Monday. Um, also in the second middle tier is the select white Russian community. That's the Morin Shield. Now, the Morin Shield, you can look at him in, in different ways. One way I, I hypothesize is that he was actually what you could call a coup promoter. He was perhaps a chess piece per the intelligence agencies covering their tracks and reinforcing the Cuban international responsibility of the first Lee Harvey Oswald, who was moved around by this George A. Bouget initially. So something to get your head around on that. So then also in the middle circle, some select mafia, some chieftains, right? Again, this was the group, the New Orleans, Dallas. They were vulnerable. They were vulnerable to potential termination or black. Mail and remember all the people I've just mentioned Shaw, Ferry, Bannister, Ruby, selected mafia. I mean, they're all met a uh, untimely demise. Uh, yeah, okay, that's in the group. This is the group that was thinking it was gonna, they were going to be part of a fake attack to whip up support to remove Castro and change government policy. Little did they know, in my hypothesis, that <laughs> the hammer was going to come down on them. Okay. Uh, also, select Dallas police, for example, Harry Olson, Captain Westbrook, Sergeant Croy, Detective Miller, Blackie Harrison from the Juvenile Division, and others. So they were they were also in there, right? Again, if you ascribe to John Armstrong's very excellent research, where he goes into examining Westbrook and Croy with how they got up to 10th and Patton. And then, remember, it was Captain Westbrook's car, police car car that was used to drive Oswald to back to to be arrested at the station to be to book to be booked his car was there they got into his car that's that's a strange one anyways that's a whole that's all covered by John Armstrong so this is part of the I think they're part of this middle inner circle right and as we know Olson was you know we're going to go into his testimony uh, some strange things were happening in Oak Cliff with Olson and his uh, stripper girlfriend. And also in this group were select Operation 40 people, for example, David Morales or Eladio Deval, Deval who, uh, of course, met an unseemly demise. Again, a lot of, some of these we can see in Oliver Stone's JFK movie. These were the Miami-based people. So this middle circle was subject uh, to being used by the uh, middle circle. This second circle was subject to being used by the middle circle, the main one. And then another thing I hypothesize is Abraham Zapruder. We're going to talk a bit about him as well. So, for example, Abraham Zapruder was connected to a person named Benny Gold. Benny Gold, Benjamin Gold, was a fashion center, center president. Remember, Zapruder was a dressmaker working out of the Dow Techs building. Um, but he initially was hired by Benny Gold. I'll go a bit more detail into that in a moment. Fashion Center president. It's possible, I'm, I'm hypothesizing, that Zapruder's filming 
was not random. I'm being coming more persuaded that everybody says, and we know the story, Abraham's approved late in the morning. Oh, my camera's at home. And then his employees all, all prompted him and, and said, listen, go home and get your camera. Go home and get your camera. We've got to film this. You should do it. And then he went home and got his camera and came back in time. I'm suggesting, hypothesizing that that was a that was done on purpose. That was a plausible deniability scenario, and that he knew he was going to be filming that. And that filming request may have come from something called the Dallas Council on World Affairs, and we're going to get into that in a moment. If you think of, I want people now to look at pictures of Zapruder standing on the pedestal, of course, and where the babushka lady is standing with her camera. I'm convinced that she had, was holding a camera. They were directly, look at the line, they were directly pointing each other's cameras directly at each other. I, it's a direct perpendicular straight line, Len. Uh, if you they I, I think they were put there personally. Uh, I'm not ascribing to it was just my opinion. I mean, I could be wrong, but I don't think it was Beverly Oliver. She was too young. The person standing there looks like a middle aged woman. And the fact that she has this camera and she can clearly see everyone drops to the ground and she's the only one standing almost still filming and pointing right at Zapruder and Zapruder's pointing right at her. It's like they're right in the prime spot between the yellow painted lines on the curb where the, the, the assassination took place and they're filming directly at each other. Anyways, that's a little side note on that. Something to consider, but I'm, I'm more, I'm getting more convinced that Zapruder was not there by pure serendipity. Okay. Now we get to the third or outer circle. And this is, unfortunately for this group and my hypothesis, their termination was predetermined, questionable, question mark. This was in New Orleans and Dallas. Who was in the outer circle? Well, Lee Harvey Oswald, known as Ozzy the Rabbit. And uh, if you remember your Walt Disney, uh, Len, Ozzy the Rabbit ran from, was going to be Walt Disney's uh, prime character. And in fact, from 1927 to 1938, we had 11 years of Ozzy the Rabbit cartoons. And then in 1938, uh, Mickey Mouse was formally ordained as the <laughs> mascot of Disney. They dropped Ozzy. The, it was actually called Oswald the Lucky Rabbit. Anyways, that was... <laughs> Lee Harvey Oswald, first Oswald, European-born, and original birth language. So I agree with John Armstrong on that. Uh, in the doubles program, you can read again in John's book uh, details on this. So, uh, so of course, when the first when when uh, Lee when Harvey uh, came over with his mother, put into some program, he had his initial Eastern European language where he could speak Russian, whether he grew up in Poland or uh, another neighboring country or, you know, somewhere in Eastern Europe, Belarus was another big one. Already knew the language, grew up in America, learned the English. So when he went, his doing his Marine, 
uh, Russian language. He already spoke the Russian language. No wonder who, what 20 year old could, could master the Russian language in such a few, few months. It was just, I mean, I couldn't even do it. I mean, you know, give me two years. You still couldn't do it. This guy comes out of a few, a number of months of Russian language and is fluent in Russian. That's impossible in my humble logical opinion. Anyways, that's this, that because he was foreign born, I think he was, predetermined for termination. I don't think they would uh, were going to terminate one of their own uh, who is locally born but in the U.S., but I mean, I, I'm thinking that that's how they might have sold it to themselves. Anyway, so he was predetermined to be the, the patsy and eliminated. So basically a chess piece, uh, the first Lee Harvey Oswald, right, uh, Harvey, as John Armstrong says, the uh, European, Eastern European born. It was a chess piece. Intel, FBI informant, that's clear. He was a provocateur. And as we said that George de Morinchiel was the external uh, coup promoter, this Oswald was, could argue, be the fake internal coup promoter, set up as a patsy. Again, George A. Bouget, best friend on return from defection. So who was George A. Bouget? You can look into him. He was Oswald's new best friend on the return from his defection overseas to Russia. What they did is they, of course, we've heard the term, they sheep-dipped Oswald through the Russian emigre community of Dallas and Fort Worth prior. So that's who I see the first person who was, who was predetermined in the outer circle, you're completely vulnerable. And then the second person, of course, was, I would argue, was J.D. Tippett. And I believe, um, I'm persuaded, or my hypothesis suggests that Tippett was on Captain Westbrook's payroll, perhaps since the mid-1950s. As we know, Westbrook was the Dallas police personnel officer. And if, again, you have to read through and listen to John Armstrong's detailed analysis of Captain Westbrook. So I'm drawing from that argument. I agree with that. And I think Tippett was under that, was under his payroll because, for example, here's an, something to think about. The Tippett's first marital home was in that, purchased in 1955. And their second home, then they got a second home in 1961. But there are no mortgage bank loan records available for either of these purchases. Also, at the time of the Warren Commission release in 1964, Mrs. Tippett still owned the first home, the first home that their first marital home from 1955 at 1919 Glenfield Road. Now, I couldn't afford two homes. <laughs> Now, I, I don't know how a Dallas police officer, when he was already working at Austin's Barbecue to make more pennies, to make more dollars, how is it that they're still owning their first home when they bought the second home? Is it because they were, which makes sense to me, on that extra payroll? I think it's there's some, something in there. I think there's something in there. And, of course, we know... All the U.S. police stations, or they did, or, you know, ramparts with Robert Kennedy, they all had CIA people well woven into the fabric, particularly, as John Armstrong argues, in the personnel office, because that's where they control all the personnel records. So that all makes sense to me. And then look at Westbrook and Croy's movements, as John has outlined. Okay, so that's the, those are the two that were, you know, 
supposedly or, you know, arguably marked for pre-termination. Okay, so let's go back to, so now we're, because the title of my thing was looking at Jack Ruby, uh, the Dallas thing. So let's go back to this middle tier, the middle circle, right? The Dallas people. So the tier two, the middle circle, role and task. So they were, their line of defense their line of defense for the inner protected tier one group, right? So they were put together, arguably, the New Orleans Dallas people were put together by the tier one group, the one in the center, as a line of defense for them, right? Thinking of these three concentric circles or three, you know, Russian dolls, one inside the other one inside, you know, the other one. So that's how I see that, is that it's a tier one. This They were the line of defense, so the Shaw Ferry Bannister New Orleans handoff to the Dallas faction and milieu of people, right? Ruby, the Operation 40 local Cubans, low-level mafia hoods, including the week of the 19th November Bagman Courier, you know, Eugene Hale Braden or Jim Braden from Los Angeles was there. And then this other guy named Lawrence Myers was there from Chicago uh, the second Oswald was running around there, gun runners and some Dallas police. So this is in the Dallas faction milieu. This group was directed by outsiders. Tier two has a collective and joined belief or outcome to participate in a fake attack to embolden the Castro Cuba takedown or new invasion, which was being manufactured by tier one. So there was to be, so this, I believe that this middle, I'm arguing that this middle group, inner circle, was informed that there was going to be inferior live fire from above and behind the motorcade, wildly missing. This is what I think Ruby et al. were, were believing. Tier two were to believe the blame to have pointed to the sheep dip first Oswald. Re, the fair play for Cuba committee, pro-Castro support Russian defector. Right. That's right. So this tier two group had the knowledge. I've been given the knowledge that this first Oswald was being was sheep dipped, was being set up. That's why Ruby knew the difference at the police station, correcting Henry Wade on the free Cuba committee era. How could Ruby, some strip club owner, know that? I read also that he didn't even know who Earl Warren was and had to ask other people exactly who Earl Warren was. You're telling me that Ruby knew the nuance. This is a nuance, incredible nuance. The difference when Henry Wade said the Free Cuba Committee, he yells out, no, it's the Fair Play for Cuba Committee. I mean, that's unbelievable, you know, that anyone would have that random knowledge. Right. That's why I believe they knew that this the Harvey guy was the sheep dip guy. And then when the assassination actually happened, which I'm going to get into in a moment, they panicked. Ruby panicked. And we're going to see how they panicked. Because they thought the guillotine was going to come down on them because they thought, oh, my God, I'm sure they had the realization we just got used. We thought it was going to be a fake attack with this. Harvey guy being set up that we're helping set up. Oh my goodness, they double somebody's double crossed us or something's happened. I'm not sure they could probably figure it out, but they knew something was going on. Well, we'll you know, in an analogy to that, you got the Richard Case Nagel, where he was into something 
and he thought, I, I better be arrested and in jail when this goes down. Exactly, yes, yeah. Uh, all right, so continuing on with the uh, Dallas milieu faction that was, you know, when Oswald arrived. So some interesting Dallas business and military connections in this milieu that was supporting Tier 2. Now remember, Julianne... Julianne... Mercer? Uh, Mercer, thank you. <laughs> and remember, it's late here, Len. I'm, I'm eight hours ahead of you. Julianne Mercer saw the, the four pickup trucks, saw people coming out. I believe this is part of this group, a part of the fake attack that they were delivering. The, these were the weapons they thought. The professionals were somewhere else, the real guys with the real high power stuff that were going to do the real job. But these guys, this is Ruby in the pickup truck. I mean, come on. Uh, you know, this this is, you know, she actually sees somebody carrying a gun. These, uh, this is the middle tier group that was being set up there that they actually thought was going to be utilized to pin Oswald, the uh, Harvey, and then set off the Castro toppling or new invasion. Okay, so let's look now at some, as I mentioned, some interesting Dallas business and military connections in this milieu that were supporting this tier two. Remember the the center, and I call this group, or it's you know been quoted. I'm quoting the Petro Military. So let's think of it like that: the Petro Military. So it included. Remember, I gave some examples before, like Jack Wright. Well, there's another gentleman who's all in there, named Neil Mallon. Again, you people can research these names. They're it's all they're all in the. Uh, in the documentation, uh, Neil Mallon, he launched the Dallas Council on World Affairs. Now, remember, I suggested perhaps if you for you to start to ascribe that Zapruder was not there by pure serendipity and neither was the babushka lady. And they happened to be in the most prime spot with cameras pointing at each other, as I mentioned, in that direct line of fire between the three stripes on the curb. OK, so Neil Mallon launched the Dallas Council on World Affairs. This was made up of aisle two uh, tycoons such as Murkison, George McGee, Joseph, of military contractors, bankers. They also, uh, Neil Mellon procured individuals from CIA. Neil, this, this Dallas Council on World Affairs with Neil Mellon in it, they actually host Alan Dulles and E. Howard Hunt in October 63 for their new book called The Craft of Intelligence. In Dallas, the two of them were together, Len. This was the only book appearance they made, and it was in October 63 in Dallas. Abraham Zapruder is on the board of directors of the Dallas Council on World Affairs, which Neil Mallon formed. How is, right? So that's why I'm saying you can see now Zapruder is not the innocent dressmaker up and just run home, in my opinion. He's in this milieu. Then I meant, remember I mentioned Benny Gold, this fashion center president. Well, he owned uh, Dallas, very famous Dallas uh, garment fashion company called Nardis, N-A-R-D-I-S, big in the Dallas area. Okay, so this Dallas Council on World Affairs that Neil Mellon formed also was connected to the Texas Crusade for Freedom. Who was in the Texas Crusade for Freedom? Earl Cavill, mayor. E.M. Ted Dealey of the Dallas Morning News. General Lucius Clay, if you remember him. He was the deputy general to Eisenhower. He was the administrator of occupied Germany and, and also during the Berlin airlift. These guys were on the Texas Crusade for Freedom, which was connected to the Dallas Council on World Affairs. 
They were also, this group was also connected to the Dallas Petroleum Club. In the Dallas Petroleum Club, you had people like Jean de Menil from Schlumberger, a member of the break-in in Louisiana, H.L. Hunt et al. They were also a, a group called the American Association of Oil Drilling Contractors in the Dallas Petroleum Club. Okay, so that's some of the oil stuff. Uh, another one supporting this, this tier two, D.H. Bird, our old friend. He owned the Texas School Book Depository. He was a member of the Texas Crusade for Freedom, one of the groups I just mentioned. He was a, an affiliate of Jack Crichton. Remember I mentioned Jack Crichton at the outset. He was friends of former Joint Chiefs of Staff General Charles Cavill and Earl Cavill, the mayor. This is D.H. Byrd. He was a founding member of CAP. We all know that. With two of the Rockefellers. And of course, Old D.H. Bird received an award on 24th of May, 1963, for his being one of the founding members of CAP, of which Oswald was in, in, in arguably in New Orleans. He was a lifelong friend of LBJ. D.H. Bird, if you can believe it, employed George de Mornshield at his Three States Oil and Gas Company in the 1950s. And by pure <laughs> serendipity, D.H. Bird was away on his first ever African safari during November 1963. How convenient. After the event in Dallas, D.H. Bird, who owned the Texas School Book Depository, bought the, his own six-floor window, had it removed, and displayed at his home. So I think we've sort of heard that story, but he had it displayed. Remember, he was a big game hunter. So all his there are photographs of some of his game rooms where you can see these heads of cheetahs and gazelles and so forth. And he brought his sixth floor window to be displayed with his. <laughs> yeah, I guess it was a trophy hunter. room, right? Is that a trophy you're calling it? Yeah, it's a, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's it's pretty obvious. Yeah. Uh, also. Here's some interesting facts for those who don't know. The Texas School Book Depository was almost devoid of tenants until six months prior to 2211. So before six months uh, to November, it was basically almost empty. D.H. Bird secured the tenant who hired Lee Harvey Oswald, as we know, six weeks prior to 2211, for those listening who are just learning. Uh, D.H. Bird originally uh, owned a private company at a different location and relocated to Dealey Plaza in the spring of 1963. Of course, we know the Texas School Book Depository building itself was previously called the Sexton Building. So it was originally a private company and at a different location. So he moved this Texas School Book Depository company to this Sexton building in Dealey Plaza in the spring of 63. Officers, right, the, the, the officers of the Texas School Book Depository included the anti-communist board president, Jack Kaysen, who was head of the American Legion and was virulently anti-JFK. So he, the head officer of the board of directors was president was uh, anti-JFK, head of the American Legion. 
The Texas School Book Depository functioned as a book distribution center of mainly educational material. I think most of us know that. But of note, Alan Dulles was an advisor at a company called Scholastic Magazines, whose books were supplied to schools and students across America. Question, was this a propaganda entity? So how Alan Dulles was on advisor of Scholastic Magazines that supplied books for, for students at schools across America. How convenient. And then we have this Texas School Book Depository, which was a transit point for shipping books. George DeMorne Shield appointed D.H. Bird's wife to the board of an incorporated cystic fibrosis charity in September 1962, just a few weeks prior to befriending the first Oswald, Harvey Oswald. So you can see how incestuous all this is, right? What I'm doing is just think of your interlocking fingers on both hands uh, by me going through the milieu and some of these business connections and how they all dovetail really closely together. They all knew each other. That's that's basically it. Okay, and then as, as we know, new flooring was being installed in the sixth floor on November 63. And what I did, Len, is I looked in, I got an old, I have an old Dallas uh, phone book for that time period. And I thought, hmm, I just thought for fun, I wonder what flooring companies, you know, might, might be in Dallas. That, you know, if you were going to uh, put new floor into an office building, who would you call? <laughs> well, you wouldn't call Ghostbusters. You would call, I found in the phone book, a company called the Daltex flooring company and where were they located at 535 west jefferson avenue in cloak in oak cliff they were neighbors just down the street from top 10 records and the theater the cinema all on west jefferson now i don't know if that was just a little fun i had i saw i just looked that up uh so because i thought hmm everyone's been saying they got new flooring laid down and John Armstrong has also come up with an interesting hypothesis about that, which I really like. But where did these guys come from? Who were they hired? Maybe they were just down the, from the Texas cinema and the top 10 records because they were all on West Jefferson. What can I say? Okay. Uh, right. Now let's talk a little bit more about Abraham Zapruder so I can uh, make my case a bit more for my hypothesis. We know Al Zapruder worked in the Daltex building, Kitty Corner to the Texas School Book Depository for those new to the case. He was a dressmaker, but also in his earlier career, part of his career, he was a pattern cutter. He would cut patterns for women's clothing, particularly dresses. And remember I mentioned Benny Gold, who was the president, fashion president? Well, in 1945, Abraham Zapruder was hired by Nardis. Remember I mentioned Nardis, who was, that was, the CEO was Benny Gold. He was, in 1945, learning the trade. He was hired, a very young uh, pattern maker, pattern cutter, and dressmaker. So he was cutting patterns. And uh, I'll just read one of the ads here. It says, pattern makers experience on sportswear applied to Mr. Zapruder, Nardis Sportswear. And I'm going to give you the address. And, Len, I want you to see if you can tell me anything about this street. Nardis Sportswear, where 
Abraham Zapruder was you could apply to for to work get your sportswear cut was at 409 Browder Street. Do you recall any other businesses on Browder Street, which was probably a 10-minute walk from the Carousel Club? No, I don't. Jaggers Charles Stoville was on Browder Street. Oh, oh, okay. Okay. And for those yeah, who don't know, you want to mention the uh, significance? Well, Jaggers Charles Stoville was that uh, uh, a photographic, a map-making company that had contracts with the U.S. government, military, and Oswald worked there for a short period of time. Right. Uh, working in the photographic department. So, hey, it's all close, and it's all close to the Carousel Club. Uh, okay, so this Zapruder fellow uh, – he was a former colleague also at the time. Remember, he was starting out as a pattern maker and a pattern cutter. Uh, but you know who he worked with? He worked with a woman before she got married. I'll give you her name. Her name was Jean Legon, L-E-G-O-N. Now, we may not recognize that name. And so uh, Zapruder was a former colleague of this Jean Legon in this time period. And she eventually married George de Morinshield. She was Mrs. de Morinshield. And she worked at Nardis when she first moved to Dallas and worked with Abraham Zapruder. Now let that sink in. Nardis of Dallas was a manufacturer of women's apparel, and it was owned, as I mentioned, by a Russian-born Bernard Benny Gold, who was the CEO. And as I mentioned, he was also on Neil Mallon's Council on World Affairs. Is it possible that I that remember Zapruder is on the board board of this too? That somebody suggested to him that we want you to film the assassination. I don't believe Zapruder knew what was going to happen. I think he was out of the loop. It was compartmentalized. But they said to him, "Listen." We want you to film the assassination in, in Dealey Plaza. We want you to film the motorcade in Dealey Plaza. And uh, so, but you can't bring your camera to work. You need to just, you need to be able to say you spontaneously thought of it to go back and get it. So I, I think he was just sort of doing what he was told because these are powerful people. He, he was involved with them, but they were the, they were the powerful people. He might have been a part of the groups, but he wasn't one of the top echelon. Somebody told him to just make sure you film this thing because we want to blow Whatever reason they gave him, he wouldn't know there was going to be an assassination. But whatever reason they gave him, they just told him, but don't bring your camera. Go because we need to cover our tracks. So, I don't know. Because they were in on the loop, perhaps, with the fake attack. So if they thought, if you follow my logic, if they thought, they were part of the group that was going to whip up the fake attack. That's why they got their one of their own Zapruder. You go get your camera. It's right. They whether they told them what was happening in the fake part or not, it doesn't matter. You're just doing what they said, and make sure you're up there and film it when it comes around there because whatever we need the film after you give it to us. Whatever they told him, it wouldn't matter. They they you know. Uh, okay, so it's in there somewhere. Okay, so that's thinking about Zapruder. From my hypothesis. Also, I will mention one other thing. So remember, yeah, so as I mentioned, Lee Harvey Oswald was working at 522 Browder. 
Jaggers Charles Stoville, Nardis Sportswear was at 409. That's a block or two away. Also on Browder, there was a club. This club was operated by someone named Final Final uh, Notion on this Bertha Cheek. Does that ring a bell, Len? Uh, not exactly. Bertha Cheek was the sister of Earlene Roberts, the housekeeper at 1026 North Beckley. Bertha Cheek had a club on Browder. Bertha Cheek had met a number of times with Ruby because she wanted to buy the Carousel Club. That is all documented in the Warren Commission volumes. So here's Bertha Cheek, the sister of Earlene Roberts, where Oswald is staying in the neighborhood of Ruby. I mean, what are we talking about here? Can you, I mean, it's not even rocket science to figure it out, right? Uh, uh, okay, so that was just sort of an aside, but she's on Browder as well. That's a very popular street. Okay, so some interesting, so Abraham Zapruder, Dow Text Building, Dressmaker Pattern Cutter, and also for a cultural point of view, in the presentation I mentioned, I show a slide here. Uh, do you remember the Dick Van Dyke show, Len? Yeah, I do, yeah. Yeah, the Dick Van Dyke show ran from 1961 to 1966. Basically, Dick Van Dyke and Mary Tyler Moore, their characters, Rob Petrie and Laura Petrie, were the TV equivalent of Jackie and John Kennedy, but for living in the suburbs. They were the new faces of television, just like Camelot. They were the Camelot of television. And that's how I always saw them. So, and they ran, started right September 1961 was the first season of uh, well, the Dick Van Dyke show. Uh, but on the final card here on the end credits, I froze it and it says, you know, when they ran the music at the end and they have all the, the credits and then it says the final one, it says Mr. Van Dyke's suits furnished by Botany 500 fashions by Nardis of Dallas. So here is the connection. This was just the cultural connection. That remember the owner of Nardis employs Abraham Zapruder, and then it was such a big fashion house is that they used the fashions on the Dick Van Dyke show, and I read some more on that. In fact, uh, Benny Gold, who remember the the CEO of Nardis, and who were, Zapruder had worked early in his career and kept up contacts in these other groups that I mentioned, uh, organizations in Dallas, Council on World Affairs. Uh, here he, he said he, he let the cast keep all the clothing and as a gift. So that was, they were very happy to have Nardis of Dallas fashions. So I thought that was an interesting sort of strange uh, cultural connection, uh, uh, you know, synchronistic. Okay. Abraham Zapruder was a 32nd degree Freemason. Remember, this is no shrinking guy. Everyone has this notion that Zapruder was just this very nice old guy in a suit with a hat and a bow tie who lives in the suburbs and runs a dressmaker. I mean, he's a 32nd degree Freemason. Hello. Zapruder film was bought, of course, by Henry Luce. Henry Luce, of course, was Yale Skull and Bones. His wife, Claire Booth Luce, had fun in Castro overthrow excursions. So, hypothesis. Zapruder 
was enjoined to film the motorcade. His late morning trip home to retrieve the movie camera was a cover story for a spontaneous decision to ensure plausible deniability. And then question mark about his unwittingness. I think he was compartmentalized. He wouldn't have known. Or they said some event may happen. We want you to film. Who knows what they told him. He was, I'm, he was given a request to make sure you film it. We need it. You do it. That's it. Okay. Uh, now we're on to member of the supporting group, this uh, tier two, who was supporting them. George A. Bouget. Remember I mentioned him? B-O-U-H-E. He was part of the white Russian community in Dallas. He was a Russian emigre. He was Oswald's first handler in Dallas in 1962. Soon as Oswald got there, his new best friend was George A. Bouget. Bouget was initially wary at the welcome dinner. When Lee and Marina arrived, there was a welcome dinner organized by someone named Peter Paul Gregory, where George A. Bouget was introduced to. He was quite wary of them. Uh, and Peter Paul Gregory was the first white Russian contact on the Oswald's USSR return. So they met Peter Paul Gregory brought to Dallas, had a welcome dinner. George A. Bouget's there. Now he's his new best friend. Uh, Peter Paul Gregory was a consulting petroleum engineer who ta taught Russian part-time in Dallas. So Bouget was a little wary, as I mentioned, so he called Max Clark. Max Clark uh, was a lawyer married to a Russian former security head of General Dynamics. So Max Clark was a lawyer who was married to a Russian and was a former security head of General Dynamics. And the Warren Commission's Albert Jenner's top client. Albert Jenner took Bouget's deposition for the Warren Commission. So this is who Bouget called uh, to get, you know, the, because he was a bit, you know, wary of these Oswalds. So he called us Max Clark, and I guess obviously they gave him the thumbs up because then George Bouget took on the Oswalds as their best friend. But isn't that interesting? He was the former security head of General Dynamics, all that stuff with the fighter planes, and then Albert Jenner's top client who took his de Bouget's deposition. I mean, what's going on here? Okay, uh, George Bouget had Lee Harvey Oswald's New Orleans and Elsbeth addresses in his personal phone book. He, Bouget, introduced Lee Harvey Oswald to George DeMornchild, who took over as new handler. Now, here's an interesting uh, thing. George Bouget lived at, in Dallas, an address called 4740 Homer Street, H-O-M-E-R. That's 4740 Across, directly across from this building was 4749. These were apartment buildings, low rise. 4749. So this was a directly across from 4740 Homer Street. Who who do you think lived at 4749 Homer Street directly across from Bouget? Oh, you're going to surprise me. Go ahead, who? Jack Ruby. Okay. All right. So that's unbelievable. That's before he went to his Ewing address, before he moved to Oak Cliff. I mean, that's un unbelievable. I mean, you know, I, I, yeah, I don't want to get to over. I mean, you know, what are we, 
All right. So people can think about that. Yeah, that's my neighbor, Jack Ruby. Okay, we know Jack Ruby famously resided at 223 South Ewing Street, apartment 207, and he moved there in November 62. So before that, right, remember he's at that other address across from Bouget, Oswald's new best friend. Hello. All right. Uh, so, okay, Ruby moves to, okay, this is, I'm giving you these addresses now because it's going to play uh, interesting points coming up. 223 South Ewing, apartment 207, November 62. His new, he had an unlisted phone number. Len, if you, I'll give you the number if you want to ring it. He might pick up WH, that's Whitehall 5601. That was an unlisted number he had. Who moves in at the exact same time? At the exact same time, November 62, another person moves into 223 South Ewing, apartment 208. Ruby's in 207. And that was Tammy True, a carousel stripper. So Tammy True, one of the carousel strippers, moves in at the same time in the apartment directly across from Ruby on Ewing Street. She, Tammy True had worked at the carousel since March 1961, just prior to the Bay of Pigs invasion. Tammy True moves out of her apartment across from Jack Ruby's in July 1963. And you know who moves into her apartment in 208? Two Dallas police officers, Sexauer and Strabeck, move into apartment 208 in August 1963. Dallas police officers Sexauer, Stewart, and Bateman now share 208 on September 1st, 1963 to October 1563. Now, isn't this, just think about this. Tammy True moves in. She moves out of the apartment across from Jack Ruby's in July 63. Who moves in but two Dallas police officers? They're going to be roommates in 208, directly across from Ruby. In September, one month later, Strebeck moves out, and two other Dallas police officers join Dallas police officer Sex Hour. So that's Sex Hour, Stewart, and and Bateman, three of them are now sharing apartment 208 across from Ruby from September 1st, and then they all move out on October 15th. I don't know what that means, but... <laughs> all right, here's another with the addresses. In apartment 207... Uh, two trucks... Two truck drivers were in, I think that I made a typo there. That, that's a slight typo. Two truck drivers were in an apartment, another apartment, in this down the hallway. I, I, I think that might be 209. Uh, two truck drivers are in another apartment down the hallway from Ruby's apartment, right? This apartment was rented by a company called Red Ball Motor Freight. This was a Hoffa Teamsters Union rented apartment. It was used as a bunkhouse for out-of-town drivers to stay over. So that's what they, they had these places. I guess instead of Airbnb, which they didn't have then, of course, 
these companies would rent apartments in different places in major cities because it was cheaper for them to rent an apartment so their truck drivers could sleep on long haul uh, jobs across the country rather than them paying for their motels and so forth. Right. So they were, so that's what this was. This was, and it was owned by Hoffa Teamsters union. Uh, and what happened is that these two truck drivers on the morning of the 23rd, right. That's the morning of Saturday, the 23rd at about 10 uh, early morning, 10 o'clock, nine thirty ten. 10, they observed Ruby's flatmate, apartment uh, mate, uh, George Senator, who was sharing the apartment with Ruby, observing him coming and going and doing his laundry. Okay, you might say, well, that, well, who cares? What does that mean? What are they doing up at 9.30 or 10, looking out their door? Why are they monitoring some guy going up and down? I mean, I've lived in apartment buildings. I'm not opening the door and watching at 9.30 or 10 in the morning, randomly somebody going up and down doing their laundry. This is what they testified to in the Warren Commission. Remember, this stuff is in the Warren Commission volumes. These little gems here. These two random truck drivers uh, just happened to be observing George Center the morning of 2311. I don't know what all that means, but it's like a strange thing for people doing because that's what they testified to. I mean, what, what do they do? Just happen to open the door and then see some guy taking his laundry downstairs? I mean, why? Why? I say they were monitoring that morning. I mean, Ruby was probably getting instructions or was going to be tasked with go, going over to get Oswald. But anyways, okay, something in there. Uh, here's another interesting uh, address. Uh, so what I'm calling is that this this Ruby thing is what I'm calling this part is the movers and shakers. This is the what I call the Oak Cliff address posse. So, you know, they're all at Oak Cliff. If you remember, Lenny, I, I know we talked about this uh, some years ago. We all, all know when we go to Dealey Plaza, the first time I went, yes, I knew it was going to be small, and it's small. It's very small. But when I went to Oak Cliff for the first time, I had this. I wasn't expecting the same thing. All these, all these streets, Tenth and Patton, where Oswald lived, where Ruby lived, where the cinema is. It's very small. It's like, like I felt. I just my intuition told me that all these people, they all knew each other in that neighborhood. You know, Earlene Roberts, the sister of Bertha Cheek, who's trying to buy the Carousel Club. Oswald Harvey uh, just ends up going to that one. We're walking distance to Ruby's. We've got all the strippers there, these truck drivers, the police moving in and out of Ruby's building. Here's another one. Carousel stripper Joy Dale resides at 410 and 10th Street near Patton. I don't know. She's living almost right near the corner where, where Tippett gets, meets his demise. Another stripper, Kathy Kay. Kathy Kay resides at 325 North Ewing, four blocks from Ruby. Her boyfriend, Dallas policeman Harry Olson, resides on Theater Lane, which is two miles from Ruby and five blocks to her his girlfriend Kathy Kay's apartment. Uh, Harry Olson testified he either met Ruby. It's either May or December 1961 at the Carousel Club. So Olson's been going there for years. And, of course, he met one of the strippers. He's been dating as his girlfriend. They all live in the same neighborhood. 
So let's look at a little closer for an example of this Oak Cliff address posse, I call it. The movers and shakers in the middle tier, so to speak. Let's just look at what how what we've all heard the story of Olson and guarding this estate, but let's just look a little forensic look at his testimony, what he said. So first of all, remember Harry Olson has said, "Yes, I was uh, guarding an estate on the day, and uh, you know I can't remember anything." Blah blah blah. Let's see what he says. So here's his testimony. He doesn't remember the name of the colleague. That's somebody he worked with. Doesn't remember the name who hired him to cover, to guard the estate on 8th Street, which was two blocks off the Stemmons Freeway. He can't remember. He was on guard duty at this estate. This is on the 22nd of November, right? It's 22nd of November from 7 a.m. to 8 p.m. But he couldn't give, there was, he gave no address or description of the building and was never asked by the commission. They didn't ask him what the address was. They didn't ask him to describe the building or the, or the apartment, anything. At 8 p.m., this is his testimony, at 8 p.m., a motorcycle, quote, a motorcycle officer came to relieve me, unquote. No name or description asked for. Oh, I don't know. The motorcycle officer can't really me. I don't. I, not only doesn't he volunteer the name, that's fine. But no, they, he's not asked. No description. Shortly after the assassination, so this is in the afternoon. Remember, he's guarding this estate. Shortly after the assassination, he testi Olson testifies. A woman telephoned him at this estate. This was a friend of a person who lived there to tell him about the assassination, but he doesn't know the name of the caller. I mean, you see we're getting into la-la land here. Uh, so here he is guarding the estate. He's sitting in there. The phone rings shortly after the assassination. It's a woman. Doesn't say who she is. She's just a supposed friend of a person who lived there, but he doesn't know who lived there, uh, to tell him, Harry Olson, about the assassination, but doesn't know the name of the caller. I guess he didn't think to ask. I mean, I don't know. And, of course, he doesn't remember the name of the colleague who hired him. <laughs> okay, so they get away with this. I mean, this is just like hilarious, reading this in the Warren Commission. Okay, uh, another interesting fact. So on 2211, Olson's leg was in a cast due to a recent fall. He had broken his kneecap, and he was using crutches. Well, that's pretty good for somebody guarding an estate. I guess if somebody is going to break into this estate on 8th Street in Oak Cliff, this valuable estate off the Stebbins Freeway, he could whack them over the head with his crutches or something or chase after them. Uh, not much of a security guard if he's got a broken kneecap. Okay. Okay, he testifies at 8 p.m. He walks. Remember, he's got a broken kneecap using crutches. He walks to Kathy Kay's apartment, his stripper girlfriend, four blocks away on Ewing Street. Remember, her apartment is then four blocks onward to Jack Ruby's. All right, so that's funny. He spent several hours with Kathy Kay on the evening of the 2211, and then they drove off together into the night. This is his testimony. He went, they went together to a car garage at Jackson and Field Streets, which was located a few blocks from Dealey Plaza and a block from the Adolphus Hotel. Then he testifies that Jack Ruby all of a sudden joined them in the car 
for two to three hours. Here, the Warren Commission asks no questions about what was discussed or what was the reason for the meeting. This is his testimony. Yeah, Jack, we're parked here uh, late in the evening. And then Jack Ruby joins us in the car for two to three hours. Olson then revises his story, saying that they saw Ruby in front of the carousel at 10 or 11 p.m. And then they drove around till 1 or 2 a.m. So he changed the story a little later. Olson says, this is key now, Olson says that Ruby knew Tippett, who frequented the Carousel Club. Now, that one, I believe, that's, you know, that is that makes complete sense. Uh, he also says what he was, uh, he also testified that Kathy Kay told him, his stripper girlfriend, that she phoned Ruby in the afternoon when he was guarding the house. Then Olson alters the car meeting time. First he said, remember all, you know, two or three hours, then it's uh, the, for uh, drove around to one or two. Now he alters it, the meeting with Ruby, to 30 minutes to an hour. But Ruby was very nervous. So this is what I mean by this whole persona of Ruby's because later on, I'm going to mention, he goes to his sister's place and he's throwing up. I mean, nobody was that upset, especially some mafia, low-level mafia strip club owner, hoodlum. Why is he so upset throwing up? He's nervous. People say he's distorted. His face is contorted. I mean, because I believe that initially he thought he the guillotine was going to come down on him and those people that he was with to be part of this fake attack and maybe realizing maybe I was used, right? This, that we're going to get sucked into this thing somehow. I mean, that's why, right? All everybody during this time period said he was like out of, out of control emotionally. Okay. Uh, Olson recalls also stopping somewhere else to talk to someone, but can't remember who. So on their journey, driving around in the middle of the night. Yeah. We stopped somewhere else, but to talk to someone, but we don't know who they were. They arrive back at Kathy Kay's apartment between 2 and 3 a.m. So now it's in the early morning hours of the, uh, of the 23rd. They get back to the apartment. He also testifies he remembers Ruby going to Cuba. Okay, well, that's pretty well documented. Yeah, Ruby did go to Cuba. So you, but he remembers that. Following this, the assassination, on December 7th, 1963, Olsen is in a car accident re-breaking his leg and with further bone breaks and he also cracked his chest bone with many ribs cracked he was in the hospital for two and a half weeks i think somebody that sounds like somebody tried to ram his car and you know for whatever he was doing with that group december 7th imagine that he's already got a broken kneecap and now he gets further breaks chest bone cracked ribs cracked hospital for two and a half weeks. The Warren Commission does ask him this. Now, this is strange because think of all the stuff they didn't ask, but they asked them, they said, Harry, do you know who Bertha Cheek is? Isn't that strange? Remember I mentioned she's a sister of Earlene Roberts, who's the housekeeper at 1026 North Beckley. They ask if she he knows Bertha Cheek per her real estate ventures 
and the carousel purchase interest. They said, hey, Harry, do you know this uh, Bertha Cheek? She's into real estate ventures, and she ne tried to negotiate with buying the carousel from Ruby. Uh, Olson replies negative. No, he doesn't. However, it's later revealed that Harry Olson had rented an apartment from Bertha Cheek for four months during 1960 and 1961. Hmm. It's funny. All these, this milieu of people on this Oak Cliff. And in December 1963, Chief Curry asks Olson to leave the Dallas police, of which he does. So they got him out of there. <laughs> okay, so let's look a little closer at Kathy Kay's testimony. Oh my so these goodness, two were... this is so so interesting, and there's more? <laughs> yeah, there's a little bit more, Len, if you have the time. Oh, no, I get the time. Uh, I just, this is like, uh, this is uh, amazing research that you've all put together here. Just amazing. Well, there's... And again, it's all it's all there. You just have to read the things. It's like what John Armstrong does. There's a lot of gems and uh, gold nuggets. You just have to realize that uh, the language and the way that Bourne Commission is uh, written, as its language use, you, they use qualifiers all the time. So if you remove all the qualifiers, you can pick out the gems, right? Just, you know, just basically think of the opposite. They say, well, Ruby, it's likely Ruby wasn't at Parkland. Well, just remove likely and put in was. Ruby was at Parkland Hospital. You know, you have to remove all the qualifiers. Likely, could have, should have, may have, perhaps. Any of those qualifying words, if somebody would remove them all from the Warren Report you'd, and put in the opposite, you'd have, that's the answer. It would be almost the, the case. Okay. So Kathy Kay. Uh, Kathy Kay, the stripper, remember, he she lived in Ruby's moved in right across the thing before the police took over her flat, and then she moved out, blah, 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 blah. All right, so now she's four blocks from Ruby. Here's her testimony. Now, they deposed both of them back to back, so they didn't want to give them any time to corroborate any stories, so they were both brought in at the same time. So, uh, And then Kathy Kay went. So right after Harry, she went in there, so they couldn't converse back and forth which makes sense. So she testifies she met Ruby in July 1961. She started as a stripper at the carousel in September 61, and she works on and off right up until 2211, and she never went back. She met, of course, as I mentioned, uh, Dallas Police Harry Olson at the carousel. Ruby would visit her apartment often, but she never visited his. So for, she lived four blocks away. Uh, he would pop down and visit her, uh, but she never went to see his apartment when she was living in that apartment after she moved, you know. Uh, she, she testifies that she knows Tippett, and she testifies that Ruby knew Tippett. In fact, I'm going to cite that for you now. Warren Commission, Volume 14, page 628. Both of them testify that Ruby knew Tippett. And they're not lying. <laughs> they did know. He did know. He was in the carousel club many times. I'm sure of it. Why would they say that? I mean, you know, what's, what's the point? Uh, so her name is, yeah, Kathy Kay's her stripper name. Her name is Kay Coleman. And her testimony, as I mentioned, was taken directly after Olson's. So here's what she says about now you 
heard what I said, what Harry Olsen said. Now, here's what she says happened. So she states that Harry Olsen, yes, was guarding an estate on 8th Street in Oak Cliff, right? And again, that's relatively close to both her, her place and Ruby's residence. Again, no commission questions about the address or the building type. Not only they don't ask Olsen, they don't even ask her after she brings it up. Because they could have asked her because she testifies that she fixed lunch and brought it over to Harry. And they both sat in his car for an hour. Remember, Olsen testified he walked back on crutches at 8 p.m. Meanwhile, she brought over the lunch to, uh, to Olsen and they sat in his car for an hour. Remember, Olsen, prior testimony, walked to her place at 8 p.m. Kathy Kay calls the carousel from this 8th Street property at 1.15 p.m., speaking to the bartender. She left the estate on 8th Street that nobody asks the address, what it looks like, the shape of the, what's in the apartment, any furnishings, whose was it? She left at 1.30 p.m. She says Olson finished work around 4 p.m. Remember, he stated 8 p.m. They left her apartment around 11 p.m. Remember, they drove off. They had a drink at a bar called the, she remembers it called the Sip and Nip on Commerce Street, where they knew the bartender and waitress. Now, Olson didn't mention that, but, you know, whatever. Okay, so she remembered. Then they drove to a parking lot behind the carousel across the street. So they drove to a parking lot behind the carousel, uh, I mean, across the street from the carousel behind it. Then she says that Ruby, <laughs> Ruby, Ruby drove by at 1 a.m. in this parking lot across the street behind the carousel, pulled in, and they talked. But they never asked about what or the nature of the meeting was not asked for. She testifies that Ruby was really, quote, really upset, kind of wild-eyed, starey look. See what I mean by that? I think he's gone into emotional shock, Ruby, because the, the president wasn't supposed to be, it wasn't, that wasn't supposed to happen. That's not what he was told. Because remember, I believe he did go to Parkland Hospital. There's testimony in the Warren Commission by Wilma Tice. Wilma Tice, a suburban Dallas housewife who was there, who testified she saw Ruby there. That's in Warren Commission 15, page 388. And in, uh, were they, and, uh, volume 25 on the FBI reports, page 224. She testified she's to Ruby being there. And so did Seth Cantor, the, the newspaper guy. Because Ruby was going there to find out, oh my God, if Kennedy dies, we're toast, man. I'm I mean, I'm just hypothesizing, but I'm I can see the the psychological breakdown the melting in this guy. Okay. Kathy Kay responds to now they ask her about Bertha Cheek too. Now, why do they keep asking these two about Bertha Cheek? Remember Earlene Roberts' sister? They knew that all, that she was the sister and that Earlene Roberts was Lee Harvey Oswald's uh, cleaning lady at the house. 
So what they said, do you do you know who Bertha Cheek is? And she goes, here's her answer, quote, is this the one who they call Aunt Bertha who works at the Colony Club? Another of Ruby's clubs. Okay, so that's what she said. So that's interesting, yeah. So here, both of them, they do know about this Bertha Cheek. But why the Warren Commission asks them about her and not all this other stuff, I don't know. I mean, that's a mystery. Okay, so that's uh, section two. That's thinking some movers and shakers, the Oak Cliff address posse, I call it. Now we're going to go to our final section. Remember I mentioned the ABCB, the American Bottlers of Carbonated Beverages. They were having what I called the term, remember, the Sugar Fest in the market hall. Remember, the bottlers, all the soft drinks of America sold all around the world. One of the largest businesses of, of the time, and still to this day, but especially back then, it was huge. Uh, happening 19th to 21st November. So I mentioned that LBJ gave the keynote address and then flew off to the Hawaii conference. I mentioned that Nixon threw a wobbly on, on JFK for the press at the Butler's convention. Of course, in Oliver Stone's JFK film, Anthony Hopkins playing Nixon when he goes there. Well, they don't use the Butler's convention. They use a, a car convention uh, to put Nixon in there. Okay, so yeah, so it was uh, so this was the 45th annual conven convention and international soft drink industry exposition that was happening. Uh, America, the ABCB, America's national drink. Their motto was enjoy sparkling soft drinks. <laughs> uh, soft drink bottlers, as we uh, many of your the seasoned researchers know, soft drink bottlers were utilized in countries around the world for intel purposes. For example, the biggest one is Pepsi Cola. Uh, you know they they're all over the place uh, in, in uh, Southeast Asia and everywhere. Right? They were used for intel purposes. And here I have a picture which I showed on the screen from May 3rd, 1963. There's a picture of J the actress, famous actress, classic Hollywood actress, Joan Crawford, meeting with uh, JFK in the Oval Office with some other executives. Uh, so Pepsi-Cola had actress Joan Crawford, uh, who was married to uh, one of the leading people, I think it was the president of Pepsi, uh, who was stomping for uh, Pepsi here in May 63 in this photograph. Also, Pepsi-Cola had, uh, had the legal firm employing Richard Nixon working for them. So uh, here, that's why Nixon was at this Butler's convention, because he, Nixon was working for his New York, the New York law firm that was employed by Pepsi-Cola. Okay. And so some details on the exhibit. There were 194 exhibitors at this exposition, 194 exhibitors. Len, that meant there was over 7,500 attendees from across the United States descended on Dallas that week of no 19th November. Now, that's a lot of people. I say there's a lot of potential for undercover can slip right into that. There was all kinds of strangers swarming all over Dallas, especially in that whole area. Remember the market hall and the trade center were like literally 
two and a half minute drive to Dealey Plaza. They were the halfway point to Parkland Hospital, right? Which was basically not even a, a, a 10 minute drive from Dealey Plaza. They were smack in the middle. Remember I mentioned the Cavania Hotel, the Cavania Motorhome Hotel. That was right near the market hall and almost across from the trademark. We're going to get to that in a moment. So all these people there, easy for people to fly right under the radar for any nefarious things. Good cover. Here I've got a letter here. So the August 1st, 1963, uh, the American Bottlers of Carbonated Beverages has had written to uh, the Honorable Vice President Lyndon B. Johnson asking him to do the keynote address. So it was all planned in August for uh, LBJ to do the keynote. Of course, this is his home area. And of course, these are powerful uh, sugar people. Yep. Okay, so. Uh, yes, the ABC uh, ex uh, exposition, which I show on a little map here, right on Stemmons Freeway, goes right by it, uh, all the way to Parkland Hospital. And also remember Industrial Boulevard. Industrial Boulevard runs parallel to Stemmons Freeway. Remember on Industrial Boulevard, that's where the convenience shop, where the American-born Lee Oswald was buying beer and peanut brittle at 9.30 in the morning and had to show his ID to the shop proprietor, who then returned Oswald an hour later, bought more beer. That's why the guy remembered him. I mean, it's so easy, right? Plus, he was at top 10 records that morning buying tickets to Dick Clark. Okay, so that he's part of that middle group in there, too. Yeah. Okay, so uh, I also found a – what was interesting – is that I always I found a hotel a motel rates card of the time. I always you know we have this um, uh, notion that the Adolphus Hotel, which it is, it's the premier beautiful shining star golden hotel in Dallas. However, it's not the most expensive hotel. I had no idea. I always thought this Dallas Cabana or properly called Cavania Motor Hotel, was, you know, when we heard the stories about people meeting there, which we're going to get into a bit more, uh, that it was just kind of like some cheap roadside motor hotel. No, as I mentioned, it's Hoffa Teamster funded. It was the most expensive hotel in Dallas, was the Dallas Cavania. Can you believe it? More expensive than the Adolphus. More expensive than the second one, the Baker Hotel. Uh, and I'm looking at the rate. So, Len, if you wanted to get a single room at the Dallas Cavania in 63, it would have cost you $12 a night for a single, 18 for a double. If you went to the Adolphus, it was $6.50 for a single. So almost half the price. The Dallas Cavania was the most newest prestigious motor hotel in Dallas. Of course, not as opulent as the Adolphus. But it had all Teamsters money in it. And everybody was staying there during the Butler's Convention. And then you can see how others could mix in there. And we're going to get to how Eugene Hale Brading and his buddy from L.A. were there with Jack Ruby, where Nancy Perrin Rich and others had passed in that area a couple of years before. Uh, but that's a, that's a separate story about the Perrin Rich. But there's, a, you know, on the evening also the uh, – the people who showed up there on the 21st, we're going to get that, the guy, Lawrence Myers from Chicago and Gene West who accompanied him. There was these strange people all of a sudden showing up at the Cavania. Anyway, so I looked at that rate card, 
very expensive, and I have a little postcard, and it was only completed. The Cavania was just completed in early months of 1963. It was brand new motor hotel, all by Teamsters Hoffa money. So it was a real, you know, union-built hotel. Okay. Now I'm showing a picture. So uh, just to give you some context, the Stemmons Freeway runs literally right in front of the front entrance of the Cavania Hotel. So it's easily seen. As I mentioned, some of the people, interesting people, names that came up who were in that hotel watched as the limousine raced to Parkland right by the front window where they happen to have a perfect third floor view. Anyway, so I have a picture here, Len. There's a very famous picture we know of the Kennedy limousine driving in Dallas. Do you remember that picture that's going by a a bus? That It's going by a bus. Yeah, kind of overhead, two or three stories above. Yeah, that that's right. Yes, yeah, so that famous picture on the – do you remember what was on the side of the bus? Oh, chat, here it is. Just email me okay. or whatever. Oh, uh, there it is. Okay, I'm sending it to you right now. You got it? I see it. I see it. You got it? Okay, so that there, if you look on the side of the bus, what does it say, Len? Yeah, American bottlers of carbonated beverages. Welcome to the Big D. Right, so that's what I've just been talking about. This is the sugar fest that's happening in Dallas, remember, at the Market Hall. Now, this photograph to me, Len, because I know about film and, you know, staging and that this looks like too perfect a picture remember there's 7,500 attendees a lot of them would be sticking around after the 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 final evening on the 21st for the parade here of course and the the visit of the president sure why not and i think this bus is just like you know i think they had a photographer ready from the bottlers because this is free advertising it's a beautiful juxtaposition of that advertisement with the president going by. So to me, it's, this was like the perfect spot to set up your camera when the two crossed. Anyways, it just seems too perfect. But this is what I mean. This is this sugar group that was here that Nixon was, you know, throwing the diatribe on Kennedy. Remember, just like in the Oliver Stone film, Anthony Hopkins is at Love Field early in the morning of 2211. And remember, do you remember what the character says? <laughs> he looks up in the sky, the clouds are starting to part, and then, and then he says, let's get the hell out of here. <laughs> that was That's Oliver Stone sort of uh, dramatized. But that's true. He left early that morning, as we know, got the hell out of there because it wasn't, uh, you know, it was too strange for him to carry on. But he had to do his duty for the uh, Bottler's Convention since his law firm was hired by Pepsi-Cola. Of course, yeah. Okay, so that's an interesting little anecdote there. And then, of course, the limousine races by the Cavania. Right, so this was the Cavania crowd, I call, which had includes Ruby, Eugene Hale Braiding types, the Hoffa Teamsters. And this sugar fest, the reason why it's important, as I mentioned, the, 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 the commodity of sugar, some would argue, is equal to oil, but certainly very close cousin in terms of profits because sugar is in everything. So give you some examples why they were upset with Castro. So there are going to be no friends at the Sugar Fest with the people next door to Kennedy Entourage at the uh, Trade Mart, of course. For example, Brown Brothers Harriman had a huge stake in, Cubish, in Cuban sugar all the way back to the 1920s. So you, can, you know these bottlers, these sugar dealers, basically. They want to get rid of Castro. 
There's an example, Brown Brothers Harriman. Okay, they had an, affi an affiliate, for example, a company called Punta Alegre Sugar Corp owned over 2,000 acres of cropland in, 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 in Cuba. Multiple financial interests in sugar refineries and equipment. All were expropriated. Question, is sugar more lucrative than oil or perhaps just an equal profit par partner or certainly close? Yes, all expropriated. So the sugar people, the bottlers, would want the Castro people out. They would have been certainly uh, emotionally sympathetic to anything Tier 2 was doing, for example. Not that they would know about it, but they would be sympathetic to the removal of, of Castro. And this Tier 2 group thought they were part of a fake attack to do it, in my uh, hypothesis. Okay, so let's look at closer a little bit of Eugene H. Braiding, also known as Jim Braden. He was a courier bagman for the mob. He shows up from L.A., Los Angeles, with someone named Morgan Brown on November 21st and stays at the Cavania. So Braden and Brown are booked at the Cavania through the 24th in Suite 301, which overlooks Stemmons Freeway. So they had a prime window. So they were booked there for the 21st of the 24th. This is a direct route. So the direct route from Dealey Plaza, two minutes away to Parkland, passing the trademark of Marka Hall where the bottlers were. So basically, yeah, it's like even less. It's two minutes drive. Braden and Brown are supposed to be there. They testify they are supposedly there on oil business. Remember, these are two four, you know, courier bagmen who work for the mob. All of a sudden, they're showing up on oil business per their testimony. Both Braden and Ruby were in the vicinity of the AHL Hunt Oil offices on the 21st of November in the Mercantile Bank building. Then they both went to the Cavania. So here, Braden and Ruby hanging out around the Hunt Oil offices on the 21st in the Mercantile building. Then they were... At the, at the Cavana at the same time. Ruby was at the Cavania late on the 21st of November, meeting now with Lawrence Myers. Lawrence Myers was from Chicago, who had checked in on the 21st of 11 with an escort, a woman named Jean West. Also there were Myers' brother, Edward, who was a Bottler's Convention attendee, and Edward was staying at the Adolphus. All had met earlier at the Carousel Club. Ruby phones the Carousel Club at 2.30 a.m. on the 22nd. So remember, they're there the evening of the 21st, this whole, this gang. And then Ruby calls the Cabana. And of course, our old friend who's there, but the young guy who's looking after the club at night and Ruby's dogs, other than his main dog, Daxons, Larry Crayford. So Larry Crayford testifies at 2.30 a.m. The phone rang and it was Ruby. And he told Crayford he was still at the Cavania. On November 22nd, that's the next day, Jim Braden is arrested in Dealey Plaza near the, the Dal Tex building. Remember, he's going up there. He's going up and down in the Dal Tex building. Braden's there poking around. The guy he came with, Morgan Brown, abruptly checks out of the Cavana at 2 p.m., even though they were both booked through to the 24th of November. No explanation was asked for or given. Braden was released unequivocally by the Dallas police. The Warren Commission found no significance in Ruby's dealings with Hoffa Associates and calls from the carousel 
to Hoffer Frontman Investment Advisor Irvin Weingart and Barney Baker, the, a chief enforcer from the uh, union, Teamsters, prior. So the Warren Commission found out that, okay, all these people were meeting Ruby here, including this Lawrence Myers from Chicago. It was a, apparently a salesman, but that a lot of time to sh just happened to show up and talk to Ruby all this time with the Cavani, and they all meeting together with the brother and the blah, blah, blah. And then you've got Braden and Morgan there. As, but the Warren Commission finds out that Ruby had dealings with other Hoff associates, right? The frontman investment advisor. A frontman is uh, someone who's got a clean record. So this Urban Weinger had a clean record, and he would be an investment advisor. And then Barney Baker, who was one of those uh, enforcer guys, tough guy. All Ruby had all these calls to these people before. The Warren Commission never asks Ruby, Braden, Brown, Myers, West, Weiner, Baker, or the Hunt family and others on their interactions with each other during that time period, whether at the Cavania or on the phone. They never ask any of these questions, yet all these people are testifying or uh, said, or they show up in people's testimony. Oh, I was at the mercantile building. Oh, I was at the Hunt building. I went, you know, did this, blah, 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 whatever it is. But they don't ask any questions. As Clyde said to Bonnie, ain't life grand. Thank you. <laughs> that's it, the end. Wow, that's quite a presentation. Thank you so much for sharing it here. That's just unbelievable. I'm going to have to give it a, a second listen and um, maybe make some notes because there's just so much there, information you've put down. That's just like, uh, you know, what I've gleaned from the these volumes and, and other books and so forth. I mean, everything's all out there. It's just what I'm doing, Len, is my thing isn't so much doing original research. My thing is putting the pieces of puzzles together pieces together or pieces that don't make sense or getting people to think about it or adding to it or something we may have known a little bit about. Like a lot of this information, you know, the serious, the, the seasoned researchers know a lot of it, but just think about how it fits together and maybe thinking about these three tiers, you know, is it possible or, you know, why Ruby also tested, I mean, his sisters testified. So during this time on 2211, uh, 2311, Ruby is, uh, on 2211, it's over at uh, 2311, sorry, at his sister's place throwing up. She testifies he's throwing up. You know, you could say, you know, he's ill. His demeanor changes, Len. His only time his demeanor changes once Oswald is charged. Then all of a sudden. Oh, I thought maybe it was he, once Oswald, he was told Oswald was dead. Well, yeah, that's true. Yeah, when he was dead, that's true. Yes. But his demeanor also changed when they were focused on Oswald as opposed to that, you know, when he was charged initially, people were saying now he he looked better, he was feeling different. I mean, he was acting more jovial. He was bringing sandwich. I mean, whatever it was he was doing, his demeanor changed again because he, he knew that it was going to get focused on Oswald. And, of course, whatever instructions he had, he probably – I don't think it was – he. I think he was told to get rid of Oswald – at some point between the charging, I don't think that would have, like, if according to my hypothesis, he, that wouldn't have been in the initial loop because they would have thought he's going to get nailed for it. But then the powers that be, whomever, put the word out 
maybe through their low-level mafia from coming from maybe the first tier. Remember the the, the, the inner circle. All right, you you've got to get rid of this guy. Otherwise, we will lay the guillotine down on you. I think they had enough on all those people. Remember, all those people in the middle tier, they all they all expired, Len. The whole New Orleans, you know, Ferry, Bannister. Bannister was dead that summer of 64. I mean, that couldn't be any quicker. You know what I mean? Even Shaw, yes, he made, yeah, but he, 1972, he was gone. So, you know, I mean, they all, you know, Ruby was gone. He was, you know, the first the Oswald. I mean, who, who you know, it's uh, Tippett was gone. So, Anyway, so that's just some uh, pontificating on that. But I think the uh, it's somewhere in there. His demeanor tells me a lot when it changes. And then he was given the orders because he, people were calling. I think the orders came from maybe through some of the Dallas police rang him. Did some of those police officers in the juvenile division, I, I remember reading their names, like all those list of ones I read before. They they made some they were the ones there there's three Dallas, two or three Dallas police who insisted on lawyers at the, at their de- deposition and that the counsel, I think it was Burt Griffin or other, accused them of lying or was one of the I think it was Griffin, accused them uh, one of them, they were pushing them that they weren't telling them the truth. Right. So they had lawyers there and then that Dean guy, so the Dean officer about him coming down the the their the ramp. I think there was a group that knew they he didn't come down the ramp and they, you know, the door was unlocked so he could come in the, uh, you know, from the uh, tele sending the telegram. Uh, that's why I think it was all last minute. Cause he brought the dog. He had one of the dogs in the car. That was probably a, a comfort dog. I'm sure. Take the stress off. Uh, but yeah, I think any, he, he probably thought he might get off with the, uh, you know, involuntary manslaughter or something. Who knows what, whatever they, might have fed him on that. Yeah, might have told him he'd be a hero, right? Not even necessary that is, you know, his death. You remember, he came into, he gave his power of attorney, like just a, a short time before, just a few weeks before, or maybe it was a month before, he signed over as a power of attorney to his lawyer. And he told his lawyer, I'll be coming into some money soon to pay off all my IRS debts. He was like massively in debt to the IRS. So I don't know. There was some money he thought he was going to come into and then maybe they said okay well you know you to get your money you're going to have to do this one last deed or if not we're going to lump you in i think it was more it's not even uh, he was asked to do it he was probably threatened saying listen you got to do this or else you're going to get lumped in with oswald yeah well that's what the policeman said that when they arrested jack ruby and then he was down in the cell with them and then he said that once they got word back, he said, oh, Lee Oswald has died. Then he, the anxiety was gone. I think he even asked for a cigarette, and then it was like a weight was lifted off him. Okay. Yeah, that was – yeah. Yeah, because I, th- I think – I mean, I see it like that. I think that was the second weight that was added. Like, I think it had the huge weight, thought it was going to be toast. He was trying to figure out what to do. That's why Ruby is running all over this area like a crab. He's moving all over. Right. He's I believe he was at the Parkland Hospital. He wanted to find out if Kennedy was going to die. He was asking that Seth Cantor, do you know if Kennedy's dead? You know, I, mean, I think he needed to find out because and then when he found out he was dead, then the real panic set in. That's when he was throwing up. Uh, the, he looked terrible. He looked crazed. You know, you know, he was having some kind of breakdown or like barely holding it together. He's running all over trying to figure out what to do. And then when they grabbed the Oswald, then I think the relief lifted. Uh, and then they must have caught, I think they rang him that somebody gave him a word somewhere and then they rang him that morning 
and told them, okay, you got to go down there now and do this. Somebody, something, it's in there somewhere. And then, okay, now the second weight is on him. He's got, oh my God. Right. You know what I mean? So it was a And then you're right. After that was over, then he really uh, relaxed, stopped sweating and so forth. So uh, anyway, so that's kind of a roller coaster emotionally that person was on. And so uh, anyways, in this talk, I'm just using the the carousel because all this stuff, as I said, happened basically in a five mile radius. Right. Remember, the parkland's only a few miles away. Uh, all these places I just mentioned, all on the Browder Street, all Jaggers, Charles, and Stouffville was a few blocks away from the Carousel Club, right? All these fashion designers, you know, is Zapruder connected to all these uh, on the board of directors of this organization and that, you know, I'm on, under these umbrellas and the milieu of it. It's sort of like uh, you could see it all, you know what I mean? And then is Lansdale there on the ground? Is he the, the guy on the ground operating you know for the the people in miami the three i mentioned the inner circle i mean if you believe that i mean it's a hypothesis i mean you know yeah well his specialty was cover stories and that and uh yeah because i i recently listened to fletcher prouty again go on about talk about lansdale and man he said he was like a genius mastermind right prouty was saying was that you know job. Land- i mean he was uh, there with mcsaisai in the philippines and then with uh zm in uh, vietnam and and who knows how many other operations? In fact, yeah, I, those guys, uh, Napoleon Valeriano and and Lou Conin and all those guys, they called themselves the Robin Hood team. I guess they thought they were yeah. coming in and and saving people from the communists and putting their own regime in charge. Yeah, and it's just think of those those people I mentioned, like you know the Crichton person. I mean, all the, and who's in the pilot car? And you know, I mean, all this. You know, there's all this, you know, I don't know where it all goes, but I'm, I'm thinking it has to be in there somewhere. You know, I think this is the closest because I have talked to, as I mentioned, to John Armstrong before about the fake attack from Because, look, the tag shot, those are deliberate misses, right? The, you know, so that's coming from behind and above. And then, you know, if you read Garrison's uh, The Star-Spangled Banner or whatever the, that novel's called. Star-Spangled Contract? Yeah. Oh, that's it. Yeah. He actually says in there uh, that the, the shot, the, there were shots and then those fake shots were used. That's why those there was rapid fire shots right after them, because they knew, according to that novel, that the, the fake shots or other shots, they were going to use the kill shots underneath the fake shots. That's why they came so close together or why they went. Remember, bang, and then bang, bang, and that's just the ones you heard. Who knows if there were silencers and others and so forth, yeah. They could have been fired almost simultaneously, and that was the plan, is that the fake attack thing was going to be the cover for the real one, and not only for the, the people, but also for the shots. Anyways, that's what he he mentions in the novel. Yeah. I, I thought that was an interesting uh, concept. So we know that Garrison was thinking about that. Then if that's what he was thinking, maybe he was thinking about this, this fake attack thing too. I mean, come on, the the, the take thing is a hundred miles away. Like you know, it's like literally right over the top. It's like not even close. And that's just one. Plus the others that went in the grass too. Right? Remember they were picking up Buddy Walters were picking up stuff in the grass. You know, the professionals don't miss like that. No professional misses the halfway down the plaza there where the guy's standing underneath the, near the underpass. That's a good anyway, point. So, yeah, so and uh, so, so I think it's somewhere in there. I think it's, I think it's, 
it's like something within something within something, you know, like a Christopher Nolan movie, right? You know, a dream within a dream within a dream, right? That's Christopher Nolan films are all about something and then something and something. Yeah. So I think this is like, just like those, you know, funny Russian dolls, something within something within something, right? The, the tier two was the, the, the safety valve for the center group, right? And then this the, this group was, you know, because look, Ruby was going there. All that group was going, was supportive of removing Castro. Everybody in the Dallas milieu would be happy to rid the, uh, get rid of the Castro, right? So, hey, if we can come up with a fake attack on, you know what I mean? And then that's enough to move it. Okay, we're in. I mean, or something in there, you know? I mean, they wouldn't be uh, opposed to it. And then you just have, you know, a, especially all these people just, you know, just disappeared quickly. I mean, look at that New Orleans group. They got rid of that group, you know. So they were the visible people that were used by that center group, in my hypothesis. And then uh, they could be, you know, either blackmailed. I mean, we don't know how it extends out. Or right away gone, you know. Ferry and Bannister. I mean, Bannister went real fast. And you'd think he would be an untouchable, but he wasn't. That's way too close with Bannister. Right. And he's one of their own. You know what I mean? So they have no mercy for the. Yeah. Know. And any witnesses around there, you know, like in the back of the, you know, any, you know, one car accidents and, and, uh, yeah. And what the hell is, think about it. I just outlined the Olsen and K testimony. What the hell was he doing? So that's still to be figured out. I, I mean, what I, I'm, I suggest. You know, what What was this place he was guarding? What I think the closest thing you can get to, just on its guess, I think it was a safe house. I think he was he was there to whatever reason they had a safe house there for whatever reason on that day. Why is he sent to this place in this Oak Cliff milieu where everybody is, right? i suggesting that could be a safe house. For the real shooters. Or for whatever, even for the other Oswald. I mean, who knows? I mean... You know what I mean? Remember the Rambler story? Where did the, you know, the the whole thing that... Well, Roger somebody flew Craig... out of town, right? You remember that flight from, uh, you know, where they went down to the... Uh... Trinity River? Right. And then uh, somebody got on the plane and the guy witnessed it. He said that was a spitting image for Lee Oswald, you know? Yeah. Like I mean, it could be the... anything. Yeah, several, I mean, several things. I mean... Yeah, Look, absolutely. I, give, I, mean, it, I think we've given people too much to think about right now. They should listen to this, yeah. read the show notes yeah. that are going to be made by Raul, and then go over it again. And then uh, maybe this will be a catalyst food for thought where other people will pick it up and, and run with it. Yes, I hope wow. so. Yeah, well, uh, it's it's quite convoluted. But yeah, just take your time, listen to it. And then it's like anything else. Do, uh, you know, for the new people listening, uh, new new to the cases, do your own research. You know, like Donald Sutherland said, do your own thinking, right? You know, just, uh, yeah, you have to look into well, it. Well, you, you know, to what we it. have, I like the, the forensic or paleontologist uh, thing. Like, we've got the skeleton here. We've got this bone and this rib and this whatever. And now let's put them together and see what the thing looks like, you know? Yeah, I think that's good. And, okay, Len, well, that's basically what I presented. I had a bunch of images, of course, at the, at, at the conference. So uh, hopefully that will give your audience a flavor of, of, of some of the things that uh, you're you know, very good work so far. So I thank you. Okay, Len, that's great. Thank you so much. All right. Very good. What are you working on now? Anything else new or are you taking it easy for a while? Well, no, I I'm, I'm, have my film things. I mean, I'm trying, I've been collecting uh, imagery for like, you know, I've, 
10 or 12 years of, of, you know, videoing stuff. Like remember even 10 years ago, I, I filmed some of the conference and I've been filming around this and that. I'm trying to put together a sort of an experimental, more of a artistic piece of like a collage of things that I have to start editing up, but I've been collecting images for like 10 or 12 years. Uh, so, uh, that's, I'm sort of picking at that. I'm, uh, teaching at my film school so that doing that and then i'm you know carrying on with this just picking at it so that's we'll see what happens but i'm, I'm glad I, i'm very grateful i had the opportunity to present it at the zero x conference so uh and again as i mentioned it was a great experience to be at, at duquesne university and uh, to be able to say our to shake cyril's hand and, and thank him for all the years work and and wish him all all the best all right very good very good. Okay, we've been speaking to Mark DeVolk. Thank you so much for sharing time with me today. Okay, Len. Take care. All the best. Okay.